Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores, and with us this week we have David. Dave? Dave Tuick, sorry. I, <laughs> I'm reading what you've written as opposed to what I have written down. But um, yes, hello. Welcome. Hi, Sam. Dave or David, doesn't matter. We'll probably stick with Dave. It's easier for you. So yeah, yeah. Pleasure, pleasure to be with you. Long-term fan yeah. and listener, listener of the podcast. So it's, uh, it's a bit weird to be on this side of the desk. Yeah, it's, um, it's, we've sort of communicated on and off for a while over sort of like various platforms. Um, so it's, it's quite cool to, to get you here and have a, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to having a good old chat. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Yeah, um, two words, Sam, I'm, I'm an automotive engineer. So a, a lifelong automotive engineer. Spent most of my career working for some of the big companies, Nissan, Renault, etc. Um also work for Alpine, very proud of that. I'm sure it will come up sometime in the conversation. And these days I work um, rather than for the big companies. I'm a freelance engineer. Um, I like to think of myself as a, as a, as a gun for hire, um, working quite a bit in electric vehicles, autonomous driving, and still keeping my hand in sports cars now and again. So yeah, two words, automotive engineer. Nice, nice. Loads of loads of different avenues. So, okay, let's let, let's take this back. It's back to sort of the start or early days. How did you get into this? Where did it go? Let's tell me. Oh, I feel this is probably going to be the most boring bit. Folks are going to fast forward this on the pod because it's such a stereotypical story, really. And so many of your guests have had the same story. So, kind of just picked it up as a, as a kid from my dad. I had a, a calm, mad. A father and you know some of my earliest memories are lying with him underneath some kind of rusty oily Ford Cortina passing him various <laughs> spanners as he tried to repair the thing before going to work so yeah my dad was a, a car nut and my brother is as well my, my whole family so I kind of picked it up really really young like many of your guests yeah yeah and then you so what what made you decide 
whether I presume you went and studied engineering at some point. Um, is, is that something you sort of immediately were like, I want to go end up in cars or, or not? Yeah, it was really. I was trying to remember, you know, when when I kind of decided, but I, I couldn't even put a date on it. But I suppose my dad, in some ways, going back to him again, he was a sort of, um, you know, would have loved to be an engineer. Um, but at the time, education was expensive, etc. He never got a chance to kind of, you know, do the studies, etc. Required to get the piece mm. of paper. So when I grew up and had a chance to do it, it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a no brainer. So as far as I know, from as young as I've, I can remember, I've always wanted to. Uh, design cars. I will admit to um, a slight loss of the faith when I was about 15. I desperately wanted to be a fighter pilot. I was probably overly influenced by <laughs> Top Gun at the time. Um, <laughs> but quickly realized that, you know, being uh, being born in Ireland is not the greatest place in the world if you want to be a fighter pilot. So I kind of switched back to the whole car engineering thing. Thought it was a bit more yeah. realistic. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, and then, so so, what did you study? Did you study mechanical engineering or automotive engineering or something? You know, I didn't. No, I, I went to I went to university years and years ago. This was the, kind of the late eighties, back in the dark ages. But even mm. then, I kind of figured out that you know, electrical and electronic stuff was going to be really, really important. You could see that even at the end of the eighties. Yeah. So I thought, hey, you know, the, there's going to be a bunch of mechanical engineers out there. So maybe to get noticed, if I study. Uh, electrical and electronic subjects, I might have a chance of, you know, eventually landing a job. So I studied uh, electrical and electronics engineering, and with hindsight, it, it was a great choice. Um, this was many, many decades before electric vehicles, etc. But, you know, knowing that the red wire connects to the red wire and the black wire connects to the black wire, that's been, <laughs> a, that's been a bit of an advantage to my career. Yeah, 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 nice. Um, and then, okay, so you went to uni. Studied electrical engineering, and and then where did you go from there? Yeah, I should, I should probably have mentioned I studied. Um, I went to uni in Ireland, actually, back in my my home country. So mm-hmm. you know, got the piece of paper, and honestly, I was I was not that I didn't enjoy my uni years; they were great. But I was just desperate to get you know get stuck in, get 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 into the car industry somehow. So I think I probably applied to yeah. every car company in the UK. Being in Ireland, you know, they're there wasn't any sort of homegrown <laughs> car industry back then. There still isn't very much, actually. So the obvious move was, you know, uh, come across to the UK, uh, pestered every car company in, in the country probably with, um, you know, application forms, uh, CVs, all of that good stuff. And I was really lucky. I managed to get uh, job offers from Ford, uh, the good old Blue Oval down in Essex. But also I got a job yeah. offer from... What was then a, a kind of a small company, it was a company called Nissan European Technology Center. So a little engineering shop that Nissan had just set up in, in Cranfield, um, halfway between Bedford and Milton Keynes there, about an hour north of London. And I was absolutely over the moon. So I got that job and that was back in 1992. So 30 years ago, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> and, what, um, so, and what were you doing? What sort of what did that look like, and what were you working on at that time? Yeah, pure new boy grunt work. You know, went behind the air engineer, um, starting from the bottom. Um, but it was it, it, it was a really interesting time to do that because you know this this it sounds like ancient history now, but Nissan was kind of on a roll in Europe back then because this was this was when the Japanese car makers, notably Nissan, kind of decided to make a serious assault on the European car industry. Um, and we're talking about the time when there were still import quotas, you know, um, 
You had to fulfill local content rules to be able to sell cars in Europe without tariffs. So it was a little bit like, you know, companies like Hyundai, Kia did 10 or 15 years later, really coming from nowhere. So the, the company was really small. It was a couple of hundred engineers, um, some experienced folks that Nissan had hired from the likes of uh, Jaguar, Ford, Rover, and then a bunch of new, uh, you know, new grunts like myself. And I was put to work at, at the bottom. I started in chassis design, you know, started designing little brackets for ABS cables and uh, uh, putting little sensors on the rear axle of, uh, of Primeras and Micras and things like that. So, you know, it's not glamorous. Your first few years are, okay, here's a drawing. <laughs> Change that by 1.5 millimeter. Um, but I loved it. From day one, I just, I just you know, uh, I was 22. I was absorbing stuff like a sponge and, and fell hook, line, and sinker for it. Yeah. That's in, uh, and then so you're you're doing various little things, um, working you know working on all these little projects and whatnot. And then how did it how did it evolve? Where did you how did you sort of progress? I've I felt like you stayed with Nissan for quite a while. Yeah, I stayed with Nissan for over thirteen years, and you know the the car industry back then, and 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 still to some extent, you know you there's no shortcuts. There's no way you can suddenly become an expert in the space of two years. You know. Um, and I, I explain this now even to, to young folks coming into the industry. It's a little bit depressing in some ways because the product development cycles are so long. You know, it takes four or five years to develop a car. Um, to get good at it, yeah. you need to do two cars. So you're already eight years in, you know. So, um, so basically, it's a pretty long process. You need to be pretty patient. So I had a fairly typical career, you know, career path. I started designing little bits, little brackets, little switches, then, you know, the, my bosses gave me responsibility for maybe a system or a module. And then you get a part of a car and then you walk your way up the ladder and you get responsibility for maybe a minor facelift, you know, or do the left-hand drive version of this car, which already exists in right-hand drive. And finally, you know, finally, if you hang in there all this time, the big day comes where the company will say, hey, you, Dave, okay, you're ready for the big time. We'll give you a whole car. Um, and that job, the job of kind of being the chief engineer for an entire car, has got different titles. Every every OEM uses a different title. You know, Ford calls it a vehicle line mm. director. Nissan calls it a chief vehicle engineer. Other companies call it program director. But anyway, that's that's kind of what yeah. you're aiming at the day when someone kind of gives you the keys and says, "Okay, you get to do this car." And that took me 13 <laughs> years. You know, I took. Everything I've just described in a couple of minutes—that was 13 years of, um, you know, le- learning the craft really. Yeah, and then uh, presumably, as you work up those different stages, you end up with people underneath you, and then a larger team underneath you, and then does it just get bigger and bigger and bigger until you've got a, a mass of amount of people when you're doing a, say, like line director or something. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I remember the first, the very first team I had working for me uh, after a few years, you know, I was working in electrical tests, testing the electronic systems, electromagnetic compatibility, all that good stuff. And, you know, uh, my first job, I had seven folks working for me. And um, I, I want to apologize to any of those seven who are still listening to us now because I was <laughs> terrible at it. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I learned by making all the management mistakes you could imagine to do. Um, but must managed to not get sacked somehow and then next thing you're managing a department maybe of 30 or 40 people and slowly as you said Sam it builds up like that um, until you know when you're managing the team responsible for a, um, let's say a mass production car right a car that's going to be built in 
you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of examples. You know, the typical yeah. size of a development team on those uh, will be anywhere between 500 to 1,000 people. So, you know, you're, you're managing reasonably big groups of people. If you think about it in the army, yeah. I often try to imagine it, you know, a thousand people in the army is a, is a battalion. So you're kind of leading a battalion into battle. Uh, that's the way to think about it in a, yeah. <laughs> in a kind of perverse way. <laughs> nice. And then, so you then are spending, are you spending a significant amount of your time just managing people as opposed to like, how does that how does that work in terms of you're like okay I'm in charge of the car but actually I need to make sure that person's doing their job that person's doing it you know how does that sort of split out and work? Yeah, yeah, and and you've just touched on the kind of career dilemma for most engineers. Uh, I can't speak for other industries, but certainly in the automotive industry. Yeah, as your career progresses, obviously you're managing more people, and you you've got less time yourself to kind of get in touch with the technical detail and follow all the technical detail. And if you try mm. to micromanage the technical detail, guess what? You're not managing the people properly. Uh, and on the other side, yeah. if you spend all of your time managing the human beings, which is kind of what your heart tells you to do, um, you're probably going to miss some technical detail and you're going to make some mistakes. You're constantly trying to balance those two. I personally found, because later on in my career, I got you know further promotions and, and was leading really, really big teams of, of people. I personally yeah. found that that job of being responsible for one vehicle, not not for five or six vehicles, but for one specific vehicle, that was the perfect balance for me because you're still intimately involved with the technical detail of every part of the car. You're still an engineer, but you also have mm. the kind of um, the sort of energy and power of several hundred people who are going to work with you. So that to me was the perfect sweet spot where you're still an engineer, um, but you know you're you're able to leverage the, the intellectual power, not just of yourself as an engineer, four or five other yeah. folks, but you know five hundred or six hundred people. And that when you get that right, it's it's fantastic. You know that feeling of kind of balancing the two. It's very yeah. rare and it's very hard to do, but I've had it a, a few times in my career. I've been very lucky. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. You, I guess you sort of get to this point where you're delegating all of the technical sort of thought work type stuff but you can get in, involved in you can go okay here's give me your three solutions for this problem and then you discuss it with everyone or whatever you know like you can dip in get a lot of like mental stimulation and then leave the legwork to other people and teams and whatnot yes and no and, and and you know this is a don't get me started on this because we could blow an hour of the podcast just on this <laughs> but um it, it, it's a fascinating area and i've often used the sort of t if you can imagine a, a letter t analogy so when you're managing an entire vehicle you you can't just concentrate on the vertical leg of the t right so if you get down and dirty in every technical detail of the car you're just going to Blow your yeah. mind. There's too much detail. You're going to micromanage it. You're going to do all <laughs> yeah. of those faults. So you have to have the understanding of the horizontal bit of the T. You need to be able to understand design. You need to be able to understand manufacture. You need to be able to understand chassis. You need to be able to understand electrical stuff. But, but here's the thing. When something goes wrong and you sense that, okay, this thing smells kind of fishy. And by the way, that's just, that's another uh, skill you have to develop. You have to develop the nose to be able to <laughs> smell something that doesn't smell yeah. quite right. You have to have the ability to carry it down. 
you have to have the ability to dive down. And you can't just delegate that. And if you do try to delegate it, and if the engineers around you see that, you know, actually you don't have the technical depth to deep dive with them, mm. basically that you're bullshitting, they can smell that immediately. Yeah. So you, you need that ability when there's something going wrong and something threatens the project, you need to be able to put away your manager's hat, put on your engineer's hat and go down as deep as you need to be able to do. And the, the folks who are good at this are the folks who are able to balance the kind of vertical depth, engineering depth, engineering understanding with the sort of ability to, um, you know, the big picture ability. And, and you're constantly trying to balance those mm. two things as well. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it takes a couple of projects to get this right. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, I mean, that I think a lot of companies and stuff, not necessarily car companies, but you can come across it in various industries where you see people leading projects or, you know, but who don't actually have the full experience to be able to dive into what they're doing in all of the details. They're like a bit wishy-washy. I mean, you see this in politics yeah. all the time, but they just don't understand the nuts and bolts at the very bottom. And then, then things start to deviate over time. Yeah. And, and that honestly, you cannot get away with that in, in automotive engineering. Once again, I can't speak for other fields, but Automotive engineers will mm. smell that out. They will smell smell you faking it and <laughs> pretending to know what you're talking about. They will smell that a mile off. Um, so that that that's fatal. You just you will have no credibility if if you if you try to do that. You know, it's not a, it's not a, an area where you can fake it till you make it. Um, not not with the folks working for you. Yeah, yeah. You might be able to do that a little bit with the press. I'll, I'll respect you, Sam and journalists and podcasters you might be able to kind of bs your way through something but if you're in a technical yep. review with your engineers and you're doing the the tooling launch for that particular system tomorrow you can't fake it you can't you can't pretend to know what you're talking about yeah yeah i mean that that, that sounds that sounds logical <laughs> everyone knows what they're talking about so you need to know what you're talking about otherwise you know see ya uh, so what are, what cars I, I feel like over the over your time so you were you worked at nissan and what sort of what vehicles were you dealing with at nissan oh man the whole long line i won't bore you with the whole product lineup of nissan in the 90s and two, early yeah. 2000s but basically i worked on <laughs> all of them um from things that i'd rather forget like the almira tino oh my god um <laughs> to actually quite fun little cars like all those micros uh, that you still see running around uh, all those oh, K10, yeah. k11 micros um, all of those basically anything that came out of the, the doors of the Nissan Sunderland plant or the Nissan Barcelona plant in those years mm. uh, I worked on um, until you know okay. the car that, that, that you know I'm kind of proudest of and I guess has my fingerprints all over it uh, is the, the first generation Nissan Qashqai that came out in 2007 so that was the first car where Nissan kind of said okay this guy, Tuig, he's been working in the trenches pretty well. You know, he hasn't screwed up too badly. Um, let's give him a car and see what he can do. And that was the uh, the Nissan Qashqai. What was, I remember, I'm not, a, I've not, I've not owned a Nissan Qashqai, but I remember them being quite popular, like when they came out. I think they were quite a few, I saw quite a few around and then a few people that had them and I was sort of slightly surprised. I mean, I knew nothing about them, but it was this sort of, you know, car that had slightly come out of, Nowhere. Um, on that, 
project or what were some things that were like difficult or unexpected? Give me some like some nerdy engineering or even high level stuff of, of putting together a project like that. Oh, and, uh, just before I nerd you out completely, um, yeah, you're right. You know, your your memory's correct. Cascade did kind of come out of nowhere in 2007 because there weren't any sort of comparable small crossovers, SUVs, whatever label you want to use. So it, it, it wasn't a, a category that existed. And yeah, it was a, an absolute smash mm. hit. You know, people are maybe not aware of just how successful the car is. Um, but, you know, it, sell, it sold 3.7 million cars and climbing. Uh, the vast majority of those built in Britain. That's a lot. That's 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 a lot of cars. Um, now that's that's all three generations. It's up to its third generation now. Yeah, um, but that's a that's a bunch of cars. And if you look at the past and previous, you know, big hit cars built in Britain, there aren't that many. So yeah, it was a it was a massive hit, and still is a massive hit. By the way, they're pumping them off um, as we're speaking. They're pumping them off the line in Sunderland mm. every fifty five seconds. So uh, a cash guy rolls off. Nice, them, so nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, to come back to your your question, ah, oh, so many geeky stories I could bore you with, but um, you know, to give you a quick overview, that one of the interesting things about the the Qashqai was that very early development was done in Japan. So you know, when you start doing a car, the first thing you do are the sort of early layout uh, drawings. You know, you decide where where the occupants are going to be, where the powertrain is going to be, what platform you're going to use. Mm. And because Nissan was a global company, the platform and powertrain catalog, if you can imagine it like that, it's in Japan. So a bunch of us, uh, about 30 of us, got in a plane and we went to Japan for a year to basically pick through the Nissan global parts catalog and decide which we were <laughs> nice. So I have, uh, you know, a, a bunch of stories of these 30 guys flying into Japan and living there for a year trying to figure out how to do this car. Um some of the stories are, are not printable and not publishable, so we'll keep them to ourselves. Uh, but that was a fantastic period, you know, living in Japan, doing the whole Lost in Translation thing and trying to figure out what this yeah. what this car would look like. I, okay, so we'll, I just want to deviate for like half a second, but I feel like mm-hmm. you do some writing for the Intercooler, which I'm, I'm sure a bunch of the audience has come across. And you did an article this week, I believe it was from this period, maybe not, um, of going to like an underground drift event in Japan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that, 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 I mean, that, actually, that sounds super uh, cool. <laughs> that was actually a couple of years after I came back from Japan. I lived out there for a couple of years. I came back, but I was, you know, I was doing business trips to Japan almost once a month. And it, that article mm. was during one of those business trips. Um, yeah, I, I call that article um, rather unoriginally the, the real Tokyo Drift. And uh, yeah, it hit a chord with the TI readers. I, I kind of threw it out there as sort of just a fun thing because my thing on the intercoder yeah. is basically writing geeky engineering bits. And this was not, this was just a, you know, a fun yeah. thing I did in Japan. And I threw it out there time thinking, oh my God, I'm not sure if this will work. But a bunch of people reacted really favorably to it. You know, folks who liked the JDM scene and... Uh, yeah, it was that article for folks who don't subscribe to uh, the intercooler was basically um, the description of an, uh, a night I spent where one of my Nissan Japanese colleagues invited me to uh, an illegal drift session out in the foothills of the Hakone Mountains. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you've seen movies like Initial D, 
uh, it was basically that. Yeah. It was initial D, real life. Um, and there I was, you know, the only non-Japanese dude standing on the side of the road with these crazy Toyota Soros and uh, Nissan Skylines going by um, before we were chased off the mountain by the cops. Uh, yeah, fantastic experience. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's worth a read. And it's I, I, I love all of those like Tokyo Drift etc they're a bit I mean they're a bit like crap but I also love the, the car side of it and drifting and whatever and, and all of the sort of fun shenanigans around that that scene and, um, and but, what was yeah, amazing yeah. about uh, it was, what was amazing about that night Sam was I mean it was so geeky because as I've described it was a, basically a drift battle between these two local car clubs um, but not only were they sort of Nissan and Toyota fans, but they were specifically fans of a particular engine. So one team were okay. basically Toyota JZ geeks who were hardcore JZ fans. And the other, the sort of uh, enemy were the guys who were hardcore Nissan RB six in line fans. So it yeah. was, it was your ultimate, <laughs> you know, bunch of geeks uh, duking it out in this, uh, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, on this hillside in Japan and um, just absolutely going crazy about the details of their engines. It was deeply, deeply geeky, but very fun. Nice. Nice. And, and presumably those, I think you mentioned it, those, the cars are like drift cars. They take a lot of abuse. They're sort of generally have bits falling off them, but then you get to like the powertrain and everyone's like, that's the stuff, you know, all the detail, everything is, is there. Yeah. Uh, exactly exactly and 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 they were true i mean my japanese was actually pretty good at the time but it wasn't good enough to have a technical conversation with these guys but you know they were absolutely mm. going you know into tiny detail because they knew i was from nissan they knew i was a kind of a nissan executive so they were just over <laughs> the moon to have this guy to talk about uh, you know what they'd done to their what they'd done to their camp profiles etc it was fantastic but one, yeah, one story yeah. i didn't tell in the in the ti article was this would have been about like oh, it must have been two in the morning, and suddenly the guys are like, "Okay, clear the road, clear the road. Uh, we got to get off the road." And you know they're pushing the spectators back, getting the cars pulled into one side. And there's suddenly kind of a serious atmosphere, and I'm thinking, "Well, what were, you know what's going on? Is there a problem?" And uh, so they clear the road, and next thing, five Subarus and Pretzes come absolutely flat stick up the road. So, you know, you could hear the miles off, you could hear that flat Subaru noise. And these five blue and gold, of course, impresses, highly tuned, just come banging through where we were, through these bends, you know, blue flames flashing into the night and just just disappeared <laughs> off up the hill and gone. And uh, one of the Japanese guys just turned to me and said, I said, what the hell was that? And he said, ah, oh, that was grip team. <laughs> because we were the drift team so they were the yeah, drift yeah, yeah. team and the way he said it was fantastic he was like it was basically oh those poor idiots you know they don't understand like, <laughs> they're in the grip. Um, so we basically cleared the road let the grip team go through before the drift team took over again but it, it, it was fantastic <laughs> which of those teams do you think you sway towards the most now grip team or drift team Oh, for sure. Um, grip team, I simply don't have the skills to drift properly. The few times I've ever had a chance to properly try it, I'm really bad at it. So 
I'm going to say, by necessity, I'm going to say good team, unfortunately. <laughs> Through lack of skill. <laughs> as much grip as possible, even when drifting. Yeah. Um, uh, cool. What, I said, one of the things, so a car like the Nissan Qashqai, and I know mm. you also were involved in the Renault Zoe, which is, well, actually, I think, tears into the next session quite nicely. Like, I've always, I always found cars like that quite interesting from a, how on earth do you make a car that is relatively cheap, or and those are, yeah, pretty cheap nowadays, um, mm. but has all the stuff, all the development, does all the things that your sort of super expensive car does now anyway, but it doesn't cost <laughs> 50 grand. Sure, is that really challenging? Yeah, you know, without boring our listeners too much, the, the, the obvious answer is yes, but to go into more detail on that, you know, the cars that impress me the most as engineers, you know, the hardest cars to design are a C-segment family hatchback. Think Volkswagen Golf, Ford Focus, you know, Hyundai i30. You know, they are, to me, you know, every, each to their own, but to me, they are engineering achievements as impressive as, you know, a Koenigsegg or whatever supercar you want to name <laughs> or whatever, you know, or even a Formula One car. And they're impressive for two reasons. One is exactly like you said, you're building to a cost. You're launching a product that is super competitive. You know, the battle between Ford and Volkswagen or Toyota and Hyundai in that overpopulated family hatch market, it's savage. You know, every, we're not even talking about every, you know, dollar or every pound. We're talking about, you know, fractions of cents are fought over and the battle is won Mm. and lost in those areas. The second challenge you have is they're built in their millions not in hundreds of thousands, millions of examples. If you have the, the smallest quality issue, you know, you make a mistake on one part yeah. and potentially hundreds of thousands of people are going to be stranded at the side of the road and the warranty costs go into billions. You know, you're talking many, many zeros. So the, the challenges of coming up with a, an attractive, reliable family vehicle that someone can buy for, I don't know, 25,000 pounds and that will run for 10 years without breaking down. It's incredibly difficult. It's not very glamorous. It's not very sexy. But the, the, the cost engineering challenge, while also controlling quality to, you know, very, very fine tolerances, is, uh, it blows me away. The people that do it and do it successfully blow, blow me away, um, which is why when people often ask yeah. me, you know, what, what's the car that's impressed you the most? And I say it's a Mark 1 Ford Focus. They think I'm joking, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I I totally get it like, and it's also you look at those cars now and they have a, lo- a lot of stuff about them is the same as a luxury high-end car from even like 10 years ago like you shut a golf door and it's like boom feels solid like you get in the car it feels solid like all that stuff that you used to go you spend loads of money on and then all the tech like, it's just, it's kind of crazy. Like one of the examples I, I like to, you know, it's a, it's a boring one, but, you know, and I know people are, it's maybe a bad time to talk about golfs because people are having some difficulties with golf aid and software glitches, et cetera. But I like to get people to think about, you know, think about the, the screen on your instrument display on your golf or focus mm. or whatever you drive. You know, that screen, you know, with the speedometer and all that. Um, well, that screen 
think compare that to your iPhone. You know, an iPhone's a pretty impressive piece of kit, right? But if you take your iPhone on the beach and you leave it face up in the sun, you notice that over 30 degrees, the screen blacks out. It just goes black. Um, yeah. No biggie, you know, you just put it in the shade and it'll come back. Um, take your iPhone and put it out in the cold at minus 30 and see what happens. It. Um, or sometimes if your iPhone doesn't work, you know, just do a reset, no problem. That screen in your car, when you get into the car at minus 30 in the morning, you turn on the ignition, it absolutely has to fire up um, because it's safety mm. critical. And it does. It does it every morning. It does it if you live in Finland. It, do, it does it if you live in Seville in southern Spain, where it'll go over 100 degrees in the summer. And it does it every morning. That is an amazing um, achievement. And like you say, it, 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 it's something, you know, it's banal. Nobody thinks about it. I don't think about it. I don't think about it every time I get in a car and think, yeah. wow, it's amazing. It's going to start. <laughs> but it is. Um, so... Yeah, I'm 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 That's, I'm still in awe of the industry and I've been working in it for three decades. Is that is that why and I, I think we look at screens or I look at screens in cars and, and they they normally get a lot of flack because everyone has, you know, an iPhone or whatever and you 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 get your iPhone up and you flip between various things and it's all super responsive and everything just works and it's like ding 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 and you flick through it and then you get in your car and it can be a brand new car a new generation whatever and you use the screen and it's like mm, not that good but is that because to then get all of that stuff along with all the robustness and etc etc is really hard or just would be really expensive is, is that how it sort of works out yeah, I, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not going to do that classic car engineer thing of, let me explain to you, Sam, how difficult it is, right? Because it's, it's too easy in the case of screens. And, and particularly, yeah. you know, human-machine interface or UI, UX, whatever you want to call it, it, it is in a particularly difficult state in the car industry at the moment. And, and I think there is some simple bad design, right? Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm not going to defend the industry, you know, Consumer tech is way better at cool UI UX than the car industry has been. That, that's clear, right? As car engineers, we've done a bad job over the last 10 years, and there are some shoddy UI UX mm. designs out there. And, you know, you've heard people complain, and many people complain rightly, like, why the hell does it not have a volume button? You know, why do I have to go into three menus to do this? Yeah, Absolutely correct. All of those things are correct, and I'm not going to defend them. Um, the good news is the car industry knows that. And it's trying to get better. You see a lot of partnerships with folks like Google, with Auto Android or Apple, and that's going to help the car industry. So yeah. I'm going to hold my hand up and representing the engineers and say we've done a bad job on UI UX over the years. But having said that, having said that, um, you're right as well. There are some physical challenges that makes it tricky in a car. For example, going to the point you mentioned, tactility of a screen and response time when you swipe or when you click or something. Um, Typically, again, an iPhone, if you take an electrostatic discharge gun and you hit your iPhone with a 30 kilovolt shot, it would be dead. One shot, it's dead. That can't happen in a car. So in a car, everything you touch, be it a switch, be it a screen, be it the wiper stocks, they have to take repeated hits of very high voltage discharge and keep working. Why is that? You know, right? When you get out of your car in the summer and you put your foot on the ground, you touch this and you touch the, the body and you get that static shock. 
right? That you're yeah. building up enormous static energy within the car. And sometimes when you get in the car and you touch the screen, that's going to earth through the screen. So the screens have to be ESD robust. Now, that's not an excuse. That's not it. I'm not excusing crap UI UX design there, but I'm just underlining what you say. <laughs> there are reliability yeah. and safety factors in automotive design that there is not in consumer goods design. Um, but the car industry has a, has, a, has, a, has a long way to go. And I think in the next you know, three to five years, we're going to see better hybrid UI UX designs. We're still going to see the screens because there are some very complex functions we have to control, but we are going to see a return to, you know, sensible buttons for a volume, for volume or for rear defog yeah. or for all the things that annoy us when we have to dig into menus. <laughs> we we do really seem to have got to, uh, you know, journalists and whatever, and people bang on about it, but we've sort of gone peak screen and then it's almost like, I think we've gone too too far we've got the new stuff that's just crazy personally in my sort of car journey at the moment i have uh currently have a three series touring uh it's like a, a, a 2019 carbs it's the most modern sort of and it has a nice mix of a great touch screen that then links with apple carplay f- does the full width of the screen which is a, a bug of mine when you use certain cars when they only use a, a tiny st- fraction of your screen for uh, things like carplay but you do also have buttons and etc etc and then we've moved into the sort of one after that which i i think a lot of people like the the rs6 but mm. the the a6 platform and a lot of out modern audis have gone for the the multiple screen situation and a lot less buttons and I got in that car and I can't remember, I had to do something and it was just a few touches. It was like a few more touches than I wanted to do. And I said, right, I'm not buying this. I'm not going to buy this generation of car because I feel like the next generation is going to go back or it's going to do what the e-tron did, which is like one step back. Um, And consequently didn't buy an Audi product and I'm buying it. I'm going to get an E63S estate completely nice. impractical but practical at the same time um but because i wanted buttons now with buttons and screens one of the arguments i've heard for why manufacturers might be pushing screens is they're easier to make and you don't have to deal with buttons uh, it, do you think that is true and are there a lot of issues with making buttons in cars no, I'm afraid I'm going to call BS on that one. I've heard it said many times <laughs> on various forums and, and by various automotive journals that, hey, yeah, the only reason these guys are going to screens is they're cheaper to make than buttons. So I'm afraid I, I have to blow that myth and call BS. No, that, that's not the reason. <laughs> um, no, I think it's more, it's more on what you touched on earlier, Sam. It's more, and this is not better, right? It's, it's actually worse what I'm going to say. It, it's, it's more of a fashion effect. So you're absolutely right. There, there yeah. was a drive to peak screen a few years back, and let's call them out. You know, Tesla. Um, every car maker, they will not say this publicly, but every car maker has been impacted by Tesla one way or the or another. They've mm. benchmarked them. They've looked at their success. They've tried to figure out, you know, how they can take elements of it. And of course, the Tesla had that ultra clean, you know, one screen, no buttons look. And car makers chase that wrongly, rightly or wrongly. Um, But the problem is that the sort of pendulum effect in the car industry, it doesn't write itself in six months 
because the development times are so long, it kind of swings. And but exactly, exactly as you said, Sam, I think we're going to come back to a kind of a middle way. You know, it swung from all buttons to all screens, and now there are some errors out there, and the industry will do ah, okay, actually kind of a halfway is probably right you know screens for when mm. screen is appropriate button for when button is appropriate exactly as you said i hope the uh audi uh, ui ux uh, team are listening to you by the way. um so so, so no to, to go back to this myth that you know oh car makers only put screens in because they're cheaper it's just not just not true so if you take a like a typical push push switch you know one of those ones that goes in and goes out and you know clicks on with a back illumination yeah. They are built in their tens of millions of units by uh, companies like ITT um, and their competitors, Costal, Continental, etc. They they have entire factories banging those things out. They cost cents. They're very reliable because they've existed yeah. for decades. All the testing has been done. The tooling was amortized when you were a kid. Um, they are cheap as chips. Um, a, a fairly sophisticated TFT screen, even if it's replicating 20 of those buttons, I can assure you it's more expensive, it's more difficult in terms of R&D, um, so it's, it's not being driven by cost. It's being driven more by fashion effects, um, which hopefully yeah. are on their way to self-writing themselves. How, so but, on that one with buttons, I think the example that, I feel like you've probably given this in, a, in an article at some point, but so you've got your can of Coke in the car, in your cup holder, whatever. <laughs> someone knocks it and it goes all over that center console stuff. You know, it could be a coffee, hot chocolate, something pretty sticky and grim. Yeah. The sort of, how on earth do they survive that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're tested for it. Yeah, I did, I did write another, I'm sorry, I don't want this part to, to turn into a pitch for the, the intercooler, but it's, I did write yeah. an article for the intercooler, which I call the sweat, shit, and switches. And it basically um, <laughs> tackled that question, you know, how, how do switches survive all the nasty things they're, they're exposed to? Not just, you know, sticky coke, but, you know, human sweat on your finger, um, all of the abuse yeah. cases. And, and they're designed for it, you know, engineers designed for it, anticipated, and they're tested to death, you know, millions and millions and millions of cycles. Um and car makers have all sorts of nasty um, concoctions that they use to test the interiors of cars, you know. So car makers have, mm. um, uh, you know, recipes for artificial human sweat. They have recipes for bird poop yeah. for testing the exterior and the interior <laughs> of cars. And uh, these, these standards have been developed over decades. And it's quite funny. You can see cars sometimes when they get it wrong, you know, because still occasionally car makers will get something wrong and you'll see some horrible peeling switch. Yeah. And you think, ah, okay, guys, you didn't get that one right. Um, yeah, yeah. Which can be quite good fun. <laughs> Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, okay, so we've got Manufacturers like Nissan, Renault, Toyota, who, who are making millions and millions of cars a year. And then we have new manufacturers like Tesla, mm. like Rivian, let's say, is, or Lucid mm. or some of these EV manufacturers. And they've not been through... Tesla's getting to that point now where they're starting, we're starting to get Gen 2. I don't know whether they'll will actually see ever see a Gen 2 or whether it will just be a continuous evolution over time, which we sort of refresh, refresh, refresh. What I think a lot of people look at those manufacturers and go, yeah, but they don't, they've never built anything. They, how, how is this going to work? And then the, the, the valuations are mad when you look at what they have built or haven't built. I know Elon Musk recently has talked about the, the biggest issue is getting from whatever it is, making 500 cars to making half a million, like that scaling step and all of these little bits. When you start with a completely fresh company, platform, car, everything, that must be such a Herculean effort to do all the bits in one go. Yeah. Uh, Horrendously... Yeah, and I, I, you know, I've spent some time working with a, a startup called Byton. We can talk about that later, but you know, I've been exposed to this mm. myself. Um, um, yeah, I mean, enormously difficult, which is why you know we, we all know it. Tesla, which I think we have to regard as no longer a startup, right? Tesla's been around since two thousand and uh, no. building cars since two thousand and eight, at least. So they're 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 no longer a new player like Rivian and Lucid are. But that's why it took um, you know from nineteen forty eight to Tesla for someone to crack that challenge you just described, Sam. It's horrendously difficult. Now, there are a few things they can they can use to help themselves, right? So they're not designing and building everything themselves from scratch from day one. So the new players, let's yeah. let's say Rivian or Lucid, they can rely on the tier one suppliers. You know, Switchgear, for example. They're not going to go out and design a new switch. They're going to buy it from those guys I mentioned. They know it's already been tested. They're going to take a standard switch, maybe change the, you know, the, design, the styling of it. And the same, they can rely on suppliers like Bosch, Continental, Vario, Hitachi, all of these decades old suppliers to help them. And they also lean on, you know, uh, companies that are less well known to the general public called engineering service providers. And so these are engineering firms for hire. You know, you, some folks might have heard of companies like Magna Steyr or Valmain, Finland. And there are, there are a whole set of contract engineering services that these companies can help to effectively buy experience mm. by the decades of experience yeah. that they haven't built up in-house but it's still really difficult and you know i'm taking if i had a hat on i would take it off in respect to any of them be it tesla lucid or rivian who make it across the line and get a car off the end of the line you know vast respect for them and, and good luck to them all yeah it's been it's I, I am waiting to see a Rivian. That's the of of that bunch. I'm I'm quite interested in those. Like, just 
what they're actually like. And as as far as I can hear, the Rivian, everyone says, it's, yeah, it's pretty good. Like, it's, it sounds like it's really good. And the Lucid, I think, is a slightly different direction. But also, it sounds like it, they've done a bloody good job. Um, it doesn't feel like someone's first car. <laughs> no, and I know quite a, a few of the guys in, in both both companies. Um, I know quite a few of the insiders. And yeah, there's some, there's some real passion, great work gone into some of them, some really, really clever, dedicated people. So yeah, I'm, I'm rooting, I'm rooting for them both. I, I, I love the, the courage to give it a shot. Um, you may like the kind of style of the vehicles or not. That's another story, but I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've got vast respect for anybody who take rolls the dice and has a go and they both had a go and then I hope it's successful. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Going back a little bit to sort of timeline, mm. you were, you were at Nissan for a while and then you moved to Renault. Is that, that right? Indeed, yeah. So, yeah, kind of to cut that story, long story short, but, you know, um, this was 2005, so the whole Renault-Nissan alliance thing had happened in the meantime. All that happened around 1999-2000. So we had, you know, Carlos Ghosn come along, Renault sort of rescue Nissan from financial disaster, the whole Renault-Nissan alliance. Uh, I'm doing this in fast forward. Um so by 2005, you know, I got a chance to, you know, I, I had sort of a choice. It was either go to Japan, but for good, not just for a business trip or for, you know, a, a kind of yeah. a, a detachment, but go to Japan for good or uh, jump ship to the, let's say, the dark side of the alliance. And uh, <laughs> the Renault guys will be laughing at that um, and go across the English Channel and work for Renault. So, yeah, 2006, I found myself parachuted into Renault's enormous engineering center just out to the southwest of Paris. Uh, this uh, this uh, Irish guy suddenly dropped into uh, the, the kind of ground zero of, uh, of French engineering. It was pretty cool. Yeah. And what were you, what were you involved with when you moved there? Uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting because we kind of back to base. You know, uh, even though I had been in Nissan for 13 years, kind of built up my reputation, already done an entire project, the cash guy. I kind of had to sort of prove myself again in Renault because, you know, these guys didn't know me. This was just this guy coming in speaking really bad French. And as I said before, engineers, there's only one way to gain engineers' respect. It's by, it's not by talking, it's by showing, you know, showing that you know what you're doing. So yeah. I kind of had to start again. Um, I ran what uh, Renault called their architecture department, uh, layout or packaging. So that's the department that does the, very early layout for the powertrain of the vehicles, the chassis, the sort of underpinnings of the mm. vehicle. I ran that team for a few years to kind of prove that I knew what I was doing um, and also uh, improve my French, actually, at the same time. Um, so after a few years yeah. of that, I sort of started to get itchy fingers and started to look around for a uh, next project. You know, I, Cashback had been such a cool experience that I thought, okay, I want, I want to do another one. And what was that? What, how did that evolve? Ooh. Well, that was very different baby. So this is the, the, the Renault Zoe. So that little electric vehicle that, uh, that you see zipping around. Yeah. Um, so around 2000 and back into 2007 or 2008, suddenly we had a decree from the top. And when I say decree from the top, it really was, it was Carlos going top down. Okay, guys, we're doing electric vehicles. And honestly, Sam, I, 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 I it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but it really was a kind of a double take. We were like, what we're doing electric what did, did you say electric <laughs> vehicles like like golf like golf carts milk floats that kind of thing 
because 2008, <laughs> you know, the only folks working on electric vehicles were Tesla. And they were, they hadn't yet even launched the Roadster. They were kind of, you know, messing around with the Roadster. Yeah. There'd been a little bit of media coverage of it, but nobody cared really. They were just these kind of crazy Californian dudes working on it. And here was Carlos Ghosn, head of one of the biggest car companies in the world at the time, saying, okay, the future is electric and I'm going to put huge resources into it. So it, it's hard to imagine now from the viewpoint of 2022 how radical that was, but it, it, it was really radical. So my little team of platform layout guys, we started immediately sketching out uh, a whole range of new platforms for electric vehicles. And one of them was ground up. It was a blank sheet of paper, you know, nothing already done. We started sketching it out and thinking about how we do it. And that's the vehicle that turned into the Renault Zoe. Um, and I kind of fell in love with it from the first days we were sort of thinking about it, laying it out. I thought, ah, okay, this is going to be really cool. And I basically badgered every big boss in Renault from Carlos going on down to say, I want, I want, I want. And then um, just to shut me up, I think they basically said, okay, you know, stop annoying us and just go and do the project. So uh, <laughs> I got back in the driving seat of the, the Renault Zoe. So very similar job to what I had done on, on the Qashqai, but this time with um, no exhaust pipe. Yeah, they, that must have been, because was that the first, from a major OEM, the first fully ground up electric vehicle that wasn't Tesla? Not quite, because um, Nissan had got off the starting blocks a little bit earlier than us. So Nissan in parallel, same boss, right? Carlos Cohn uh, was running the shop in both, uh, yeah. both companies at the time. They'd started the development of the Nissan Leaf a little bit before us. So the Leaf okay. was ra- yeah, yeah. launched in mid-2010, and the Zoe came out at the back end of 2012, about 18 months later. So the the true first mass production, affordable, practical, you know, real electric car that normal folks could buy, the Crown does go to the Nissan Leaf. Um, I, the Zoe was the second, and of course, I'm biased, but I think the Zoe was the first uh, good-looking one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd agree with that. And when you're coming up with starting that process then, presumably because it's a blank canvas and you can start to do things like put stuff kind of, I don't know, whether can you put move things around a lot more than you could conventionally? Um, did you see a lot of opportunities of that, like you're like, tech might not be there for what you want to do, but you could see in the future how it might evolve and then build towards that? Or was it, you, could you do most of the things you wanted to do when you started that project? Um, so the second part of your question first, for sure, the tech was not there. I yeah. The tech was not there. I mean, this was 2008. And, you know, you simply couldn't go and buy off the shelf a DC-DC converter or a high-voltage junction box. You couldn't phone up Bosch and say, yeah. hey, can I have your latest generation of, you know, yeah, onboard charger. They didn't have any. Um, so that was mm. kind of an advantage. It was kind of scary also, but it was an advantage. Um, and to the first part of your question, yeah, we had super rare in the modern car industry, right? I can, Sam, I can hardly explain how rare this is, but it was literally a blank sheet of paper. And, you know, that doesn't happen. You're usually replacing some vehicle or, you know, there's a production line constraint, yeah. but... I still remember the very first meeting on Renault Zoe. There were three of us standing around a whiteboard, you know, old school, a paper whiteboard. Um, 
and the chief uh, layout guy, whose name was Jose Fernandez, you know, making two sketches. One had the engine in the rear or the e-motor in the rear and the other had the engine in the front. And we were literally just like brainstorming between us, the pros and cons of rear engine, front engine. Yeah. So, you know, total flexibility. And that was, uh, that was amazing. But um, yeah, nothing existed. You had to, you had to think through how each system in the car would work. It wasn't just a, okay, let's get out the supplier's catalog and see which parts we're going to plug into this thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the things I've found is I'm not a, not a, ma- a massive fan of, of hybrids at the moment. Um, I think they mm-hmm. sort of have a place, but I feel like they're overly complicated sort of bolt-on solutions to generally existing platforms. And I'll ignore certain manufacturers who've been doing it forever and do it, and do it very well. But all, a lot of the cars I've driven let's say, I don't know, like uh, Panamera, and then you get the hybrid version and it's like plus 250 kilos and all, all of that sort of stuff. And then we've then moved on to the uh, certain cars that have, it's one platform, but it has a combustion engine and also uh, an electric version to it. And mm. those, to me, that just seems like a really massive compromise for a completely different technology. Do you think that's sort of been the case? And how? what's the difference between doing starting from zero, let's say with the Zoe, or doing what people have done, I don't know, like a Corsa or I've got an E208. So that sort of setup. Yeah, Sam, we're, 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 we're risking here going to echo on each other or confirmation bias or however you want to see it because I, I, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> I fully agree with you on hybrids. We'll come back to the dedicated platform in a moment. But, um, you know, my engineer soul has always had a problem with hybrids for the simple reason you say. So, you know, you take something that's very complex and very expensive, which is called an internal combustion engine. You put that in a car and then you put, take a second really expensive complex thing, which is called an <laughs> EV powertrain. You put that in the same damn car. So it just doesn't make sense as an engineer. That said, um, you know, I fully understand it. You know, I still admire the Toyota Prius as a fantastic piece of innovation. And I fully understand for certain folks who maybe don't have access to private charging. I know you touched on this in your last podcast, you know, might not be able to charge the vehicle uh, at home. Maybe they need one vehicle for that very long journey at the weekend. I, I get why hybrids make sense today. I get it. But just as an engineer, they, my engineer's soul rebels against them, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, to me, I, I like the purity of either pure uh, piston engine cars or pure electric vehicles. Um, now, coming to your question, all right, what's best? Do you need to do a dedicated EV platform or can you do a sort of uh, a Swiss Army knife platform that can do anything, hybrid? Again, I'm going to come down in, in favor of the first. You know, um, I think there are so many compromises you need to put in an EV vehicle if you're going to package protect for stupid things, right? Things like fuel tank pack- packaging. Uh, you need to yeah. leave space for an exhaust run when you're going to do a, a, a piston engine version. Your <laughs> crash paths are different. That, to me, compromises the platform. And I haven't yet seen a well-executed sort of hybrid solution. And the EVs, which impressed me, especially by their efficiency, you know, Tesla Model 3s, Hyundai's latest EVs, yeah. um, Lucid Air, we could come back to that again. Those are all very much dedicated EV platforms where the engineers have, have, have you know, squeezed out every millimeter, 
every kilowatt hour, every you know, every newton meter of rolling resistance. Um, mm. To me, there's enough of a market now in pure EVs to make dedicated EV platforms, and the EVs I admire are all dedicated EVs. I'm having you go with your little e-tip toy. I think it's really cute, and I think it's a good car. Um, but I think it could have been even better if it had been a dedicated EV platform. I I totally agree. And okay, as a, something uh, something I want to ask you about this topic is we, you know, as a sort of society at the moment, we've got a lot of large vehicles, a lot of heavy ones, um, mm. and sort of fuel economy is not raved about as necessarily as as much of a thing that people massively care about. People care about it a little bit, but the the fact that the majority of people drive a really heavy car with a massive frontal area um and get you know i don't know 25 mpg and think that's completely fine um in my e208 i get about 3.8 miles per kilowatt hour um out of it like roughly i get a bit more in town a bit less if we drive faster etc 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 now if that was a standalone ev platform and as sort of, I want to know where can we push that to in the future? Because obviously there's going to be massive benefits from if you can run the same battery pack size and get double the range, maybe that's too optimistic, then you could have half the size of battery, of which then you will get more range because it's lighter and smaller and all of the stuff. Like, where's the scope of this? I know we've seen Mercedes recently do their sort of project, but how far do you think more efficient can we get? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a, there's a fair bit of scope, actually. And I'm really happy. And I'm, I'm, I thank you for bringing up this topic, Sam, because I think that the watchword for tomorrow is, is EV efficiency. Because, you know, the past few mm-hmm. years, and, you know, please don't take this. I'm not Tesla bashing here. I'm a big Tesla fan. But, you know, the, the cool thing of, you know, Tesla on a drag strip, sub three seconds, zero sixty. I mean, it was cool. The first few YouTube videos you saw, it was cool. You know, um, yeah. the arms race of bigger and bigger batteries to get bigger and bigger brochure range um, announcements. I understand that five years ago like when these were coming and everyone was freaking out about range anxiety, etc. But yeah. luckily, the... The, the interest is changing and more sophisticated customers, you know, folks who've had an EV, who've operated an EV, they realize yeah. that, you know, ultimate range is actually not the issue. So the conversation is switching exactly as you say to fuel efficiency or kilometers per kilowatt hour or miles per kilowatt hour. Yeah. You know, the jargon is a little bit clunky, but we'll quickly get used to it. So I, I'm super happy that the conversation is switching here. Um, now to come back to your question, how far can we go? Well, first of all, there's a few that number you just quoted for the, the Peugeot is pretty good, actually. That's already a pretty good number. Um, mm. it, but, you know, there's already a couple of super efficient vehicles out there, and I'm going to call it two. So Hyundai, so their latest vehicles, if you do the calculations on kilowatt hour per mile or kilowatt hour per, they're actually yeah. the, the, the top of the range at the moment. They're slightly better than a Tesla really- 3 long range. So Hyundai have done really good work in getting efficiency into the system and not in super expensive vehicles. You know, these are not, you know, super luxury vehicles just for rich yeah. folks. Um, the other vehicle I've called out, and we've, this is the second time, we've, the Lucid Air. 
So the Lucid Air, the initial yep. figures they've pushed out, and that's a big, that's a big old car, right? That's Mercedes, somewhere between Mercedes E class yep. and S class size. It's getting well over five uh, miles per kilowatt hour um, because really? they've worked on the. Yep, yep, yep. Now I'm going to put a caution on that. That's WLTP. Okay, yeah, so you've got to. Yeah. That's, you know, that's not real world. That's not an actual real person like you driving it around town. So we've got to take that with a little bit of pinch of salt. But the figures they've announced in their official homologation documents are really impressive, even though it's a pretty big, heavy car. So they've worked very hard on the powertrain efficiency, rolling resistance, all of the things, thermal systems, all of the things that eat energy. So, yeah, mm. I think there are big, big gains to be made. I think um, I wouldn't like to predict any figures you know the, the mercedes concept is kind of pushing it very hard doubling the efficiency but with certain compromises but i think there's yeah. there's a bunch of progress to be made and i'm really glad that people are starting to talk about this topic and not just bloody zero to 60 times and not just yeah. <laughs> how far can i go on a full battery and then you get companies like i think hennessy are making some crazy truck or we have the uh, the hummer ev that's like i don't know what it is four and a half tons or something and, yeah. and they're like yeah and it's gonna have 500 miles of range because we put 400 kilowatt hour battery in it like yeah, yeah okay that's, but that's gonna take how long to charge <laughs> yeah yeah but sam there is just because you mentioned there is one topic that oh i i, I I feel bad going here because, you know, I can already feel, hear, hear the internet lighting up to saying, this guy Toig is talking, you know, but mass, right? I'm sure we're going to talk about mass. And I, um, for folks who are watching us in video, you can see I have proudly on the wall behind me, I have an Alpine A110, super proud of the mass reduction on that yeah. car, etc. But just let's talk about the effect of mass on EV range for a moment, because I have a, a myth I need to bust. And this is going to really disappoint you. Okay? Mm. I can see you're, you're going to start crying at the end of this segment. I don't think it's going to disappoint me, but it might. <laughs> it might. So here we go, right? So intuitively, you might imagine that if we make a much lighter electric vehicle, it's going to go further, right? That kind of feels intuitively correct. It feels that that's going to help efficiency. Mm. Ah. <laughs> exactly. That's what Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, if, exactly. That's, that's I would say if you're doing city mm. driving, not you know, naught mm. to thirty to naught to thirty to naught to thirty. I think that makes that does make quite a big difference. No, this is where this is where things get tricky. So no, uh, no, okay. unfortunately, and it's something that's badly understood. So I'll just take two minutes to do this, right? We won't get too geeky, but mm. you know, we we intuitively yeah, yeah, think it's going to be like that, and a lot of us who ride bicycles. That intuitive position, you've got it in your mind, right? A lighter bicycle is easier. It's more efficient. You know, when you're climbing in the mountains, you want a, a light bicycle. So you think it's got to be the same for cars, right? It's not. And the reason it's not is regenerative braking, okay? So every electric vehicle in the market today has <laughs> – I can see Sam's going <laughs> to jump in and say, no. So <laughs> every, every modern EV has regenerative braking systems fitted. And those systems are remarkably yeah. efficient. They're almost too good, right? So when you, the, 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 the example I like to use for people is you climb a mountain, okay? So you drive your Renault Zoe or your Tesla or your e-toy to the top of a mountain. The energy to do that is mgh, mass times g times the distance you've traveled. 
Here's the thing. When you coast down the back of the mountain, you get the same energy back, MGH. And here's the thing. Your regenerative yep. braking system recovers about 90% of that energy. So if you do a big effort in reducing the mass, really? it actually doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. This is what folks don't. So to go back to your example in city driving, right, Sam? You're accelerated 30, and then you're, yeah. co- you're probably not going to brake hard in town, right? You're not going to bang the middle pedal. You're just probably going to let it coast down yeah. or brake gently. As you're coasting or braking gently, your little E208 is scraping back 90% of the energy it took you to get there. So that's a very long explanation, but the long and the short of it is, unfortunately, if you're going to spend money, if you're an engineer counting the dollars that you're going to put into an EV, you're better off investing in things like rolling resistance, aero, and thermal systems than in mass reducing the vehicle. Unfortunately, I hate to say that because I I love light cars, but in the specific case of EVs, it doesn't help that as much as you think. There we go. <laughs> this, this is assuming that, it, and this is all going to depend on the driving, et cetera, et cetera. But this is assuming that you're everyone's doing sort of like one pedal driving, or they're using the regen to its full and not using any brakes. Um, most people I've seen drive around definitely don't do that. So, so this is like there is a, a best case scenario, and I wonder what the sort of what most people do, whether that varies on that, and then. There is the situation where if you've got a full battery pack, mm. let's say you started at the top of a hill and you mm. charged up overnight and you roll down the hill. You you don't get you don't get that much. Yeah. So second case you pack. just mentioned hundred percent right. You know, if your if your battery is charged, yeah, your regen braking doesn't work. It, it it needs somewhere to go. So you're absolutely right. If you're you know, top of the hill recharger, you leave your home. So you're, you're absolutely right in the first um, yeah. few kilometers of your journey. What I said is, is not correct. Um, but co- let us come back to the one pedal thing for a moment because that's another, maybe folks don't fully understand that. I'm going to take the Generation 1 Zoe, not, not just because it's my baby, yeah. but because it doesn't have one pedal driving. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's, but even yeah. in a Zoe, when you hit the brake pedal, so let's say you're driving in town, right? You go up to 50 kph and now you want to stop for a red light. So you're not one pedal driving. You take your foot off and you brake. When you push that brake pedal, you're not activating immediately the friction brakes. You're activating the motor. You're yeah. activating the region. And the, vi- the vehicle itself will then slightly blend in the friction brakes, but only to a minimum. So one pedal yeah. driving or not, all EVs will... Will will recoup uh, will recover a large part of the energy, but you're absolutely right. Assuming the battery isn't fully full, so I don't. Which wanna, is a little you know, bit of a niche case. Um, a little bit, because yeah, no I, I, yeah, it's it's one of those things I I'm aware of in terms of how much when I'm braking in town, whether it's one pedal or two pedals, I have the up on the display the amount of energy sort of being recovered you know whether or yeah. how much you're how efficient you're driving basically and you can see there's only a certain amount of braking you can do before it goes over the sort of max regen so i always try and break it like up to that point of getting yeah. the most regen um now do most people drive like that 
I, I don't know. I don't, I, but it's, it's an interesting point. I think it's to cover that one off of the main thing is your frontal area and rolling resistance and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and, and, and how far do you think we'll get double? I no, double what we get now is a, a hugely variable thing, but let's say, let's just say your lucid gets five mm. miles per kilowatt hour, which I would be amazed if that got that round town, but I'm, I'm happy to believe that it's semi possible. Um, will we get to 10? Oh, yeah, you're, you're right. Just throwing numbers out like this is a bit tricky, but I, I'm going to stop short of 10. I'm going to I'm going to think if we get to seven or eight miles per kilowatt hour, we'll already be doing really well. And after that, we would have to start so much compromising things like frontal area, tire section, etc. We'd, yeah. we'd be seriously eating into basic comfort and braking performance. So don't think we'll get double, but, you know, we're still talking hefty improvements there. Yeah? That's 25, 30, 40% improvements. That, um, and it would be, that would be a massive difference because you can have, like, for me, the idea of having a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack or a 150 kilowatt hour battery pack or, you know, some one of these massive battery packs. One, we know they're expensive. We know that's one of the big problems leveled at electric cars is the production of these battery packs. But if you can have a tiny battery pack, or a small, like a 40 or something, and you could get seven or eight consistently on, let's just say, maybe even a motorway journey, then that's that's so much range that it doesn't matter. And you can charge it quickly without using insane amounts of power in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you touched on it with your your your, your last guest as well, but um, I fully agree with you. If we, if we can significant improvements in efficiency and then couple that with improvements in the charge infrastructure. So I know they're improving and, uh, you know, you guys discussed the last time, there still is a genuine problem for folks who don't have their own private driveway. Fully recognize that. That's an yeah. unsolved problem in the industry at the moment. You know, some someone who lives on, you know, fifth floor of a, an apartment block or something, doesn't have a private parking space. Yeah, that's a problem that we haven't solved yet. But with more efficient vehicles, better charge infrastructure, which is coming. And by the way, I'll throw it in as well. Higher system voltages. So we've seen 800 yeah. volt systems introduced on expensive cars like the Porsche Taycan, Audi e-tron. But now we're starting to see them on more affordable vehicles. I'm again going to plug Hyundai Kia. I promise I don't work for them. Um, but they've brought higher system voltages, uh, let's say, to the masses. And that's going to greatly improve charge times. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish. I think all of that's going to improve over the next five years. But, Sam, I do probably want to slip in before I get hate mail, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that mass is not important. There's lots of other side benefits of mass. I just wanted to explain that it's not as important on electric vehicles as you might just intuitively think. But... There's a bunch of other areas where engineers can make gains. So we mentioned some of the obviously aerodynamics, but there are things in rolling resistance. For example, the way the brake pads knock back is super important. The bearing design, you can design wheel bearings to have significantly less drag than they do today. Um, thermal systems okay. are super important, really, really, really important in electric vehicles. And a good thermal, a, a well-designed thermal system can absolutely blow the socks off a standard system so there's there's a bunch of areas for engineers to go at um as well as mass 
Yeah, one one of those I heard about recently, I can't remember where it was, it might have been in Autocar or something like that, was uh, a manufacturer's looking at using heat pumps um, in the car for all sorts of things. Like basically pulling one of the things was using heat generated by the passengers um, and, and things like that of managing, because it is, it is managing heat and flow and cooling throughout the full circular sort of environment of a car. There's, it sounds like there's quite a lot of sort of way to go on that. It, there is a massive variability also today. So um, again, I'm going to pat myself on the back here, but the uh, the Renault Zoe was actually the first mass-produced car to apply a basic heat pump. Um, so you know, it was the first. So re- recovering energy from the outside ambient air and using that to heat the interior. Tesla for many many years just didn't get the heat pump thing. So the uh, the S and the X, zero heat pump, just didn't get it. And then on the Model 3, uh, they uh, released the so-called Octolink system, which is a very sophisticated heat pump. And that heat pump is scavenging some of the heat produced by the electric motors to recycle that back into the vehicle. Um, and there are, like you say, various other ideas of basically catching every little bit of heat. For example, when the when you brake, those brake discs are producing heat. Maybe we can capture that yeah. and pump that back into the vehicle. But then, you know, you have a very recent vehicle like the Ford Mach-E, uh, Mustang Mach-E. And I, I was sure when I started mm. looking at the specs that there was some mistake. I'm thinking, surely, surely it's like 2020 it was launched. Surely Ford have a heat pump in the vehicle. You know, it's a no-brainer. Guess what? They don't. None. Zero. Um, so it's just, you know, there isn't even a consistent sort of state of the art in technology. And yeah. that means there's a lot of improvement to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's an interesting the the overall efficiency given like you know a massive sway. We're not talking about ten ton vehicles or something because it's one of the reasons why a lot of people buy smaller cars. Now there are benefits to a smaller car, zipping around town, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, rear wheel steering, I think, has has actually really helped larger cars navigate around town. They're still big, but um, one of the reasons I bought the E208 or at least the E208 because was because it was sort of smallish and good for nipping around but if i could get a bigger car that was as efficient or more efficient then 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 you sort of are killing multiple birds with one stone because i think a lot of people have a small car because they're cheap to run and all the stuff but if we can get to the point where the bigger cars are close in efficiency then you could run a big car all the time yeah, and again, uh, I'm gonna, I promise I, I, I don't work for Lucid or Hyundai or Kia, but again, that Lucid Air is quite an interesting vehicle in that sense because, it's, like I said, it's a big old car. It's very wide in particular. Um, mm. It's a very conventional sedan shape, yet it's very efficient. And, you know, at the risk of opening a whole other conversation that would take us another hour, Sam, I do think we're going to see uh, a, a change in the form factor of vehicles in the next few years. So... For many years, the SUV or crossover has been, you know, the go-to solution, right? Um, From the Nissan Qashqai Mm -hmm. on, you know, we've had a slew of SUVs and that's been very successful. Customers have been very happy with them. Car companies have made a bunch of money. Everybody's happy. But it is not the most efficient design. So I do think we're going to see a return to either estate or wagons, um, Potentially even a return of the the MPV, the good old one box MPV that died out a few yep. years back. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and I do think I've already seen, you know, some some hints, some some ideas coming out, and uh, I think we're going to see a return to a more efficient uh, form factor, partly driven by EVs, and uh, yeah, that's that's good because. I have nothing particularly against SUVs, right? I don't have a religious objection to them, but hey, we've had enough of them now. It's been, you know, 15 years of them. <laughs> that's it. And I think one thing that EVs have brought, uh, definitely for anyone that's owned one or used them, is you pay attention to efficiency a lot more, I think, yeah. because it's your range varies massively depending on how efficiently you're driving or the range of your car. And if you could go, at the moment, you could get... An example I've used recently is uh, M. Let's say you've got a BMW M340i, and you and you could have an X3 M340i or whatever is X340i, the same engine basically in an X3 or in a three series um, estate. And dimensions wise, I think probably the boot space is probably pretty similar between the two. I don't know whether the X3 is a little bit bigger, but the efficiency you'll get between the two, you will probably get twenty five to 30 mpg in the x3 and you'll get 40 mpg in the 3 series which in a petrol car people seem to be reasonably happy going yeah i want the suv fine it'll cost me a bit more your range is enough that it's not going to bother you you stop for two minutes you fill up you move on in an electric car if you had the two platforms and one has 300 mile range and one has 400 mile range i think a lot of people would look at that and go Mm, yeah, I would quite like 400 miles of range. Yeah, fully agree, fully agree. And I think just going back to your point about, you know, enjoying zipping around the city in the, in the E208, uh, let me just get on my hobby horse for a moment and one particular vehicle dimension where I think we've we've gone crazy, and I'm, I'm speaking as automotive engineers and designers, you know, I'm holding my hand up, you got it, vehicle width. I mean, it. It's just not sustainable, especially in European cities. I drive quite a bit in Paris, and no. you know the width of modern vehicles is—it just takes away from the driving pleasure. Now I know there are good reasons. Side crash impact is so much better than older cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, if, you, if I want to be T-boned in a car, I want a modern car. I don't want some, you know, 1970s yeah. or 1980s vehicle. But still, I think we can turn that clock back, be a little bit more disciplined in in, in vehicle width and get it back to, it just makes so much difference in driving pleasure. So I'm hoping to see vehicles with more reasonable widths and lower roof lines coming, which go exactly in the direction you're talking about in terms of vehicle efficiency and reduced frontal area. Yeah. Yeah, width is is a really interesting one. The, the amount of excess Don't get me started, Sam. Don't, get me started on Sam. Don't get me started <laughs> like, on Sam. Exactly <laughs> proportional to the amount of fun you can have. Like a tiny car on a normal size road in the UK is a lot more fun than a car that's the exact width. And yeah. luxury cars, and, and we're not let's not dive into this too much, but like luxury cars, one of the things that makes a car luxurious to me is like how comfortable you feel driving around. Mm. And the big luxurious cars we have at the moment, if you drive them around London or, you know, let's say a small Italian city or town or something, you are not having a luxurious experience because you are shit scared of scratching your wing mirrors and smashing into stuff or going through width restrictions or all of these things the entire time. Yeah. 
Fully agree. And again, we could we could both do our, you know, oh, things were better in the old days. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And there are some I'm not saying that. There are some good technical reasons why cars got wider, right? And again, I've I've seen what happens to human beings in a pole crash impact. It's not pretty, right? Uh, it's really not pretty. So yeah. the width we've added to cars to make them safer in side impact, you know, all in a good cause. But there has been some lazy engineering and lazy design out there. And I think uh, hopefully the industry is going to improve that in the next few years. Because like you say, it adds to pleasure. It adds to the luxury experience. And it's more efficient. So... Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll get down off that happy horse now, Sam. Yeah. Let's let's jump off this one, um, and into small. Let's let's talk about small and light. Um, so after working at Renault, or I guess it's still under the same umbrella, mm. you um, you had a, a chance to get involved in this uh, Alpine project. Yeah. So look, look, lucky boy that I am. So um, yeah, that came about. That the, the Zoe project was finished. And um, I was kind of casting around for my next job, uh, probably a little bit bored, to be honest. I'm, uh, going back to our, our conversation several times back, I was running sort of a, a division in Renault, big team, um, but you know, doing a lot of man management and budget management and kind of things that weren't sort of setting my heart on fire. When I heard the rumor that you know Renault Group were finally going to resurrect the Alpine brand, you know, and uh, – it, it's hard to explain maybe for a non-French audience, but Alpine is something that's, you know, tattooed on the heart of every car enthusiast. The, the company went bust in 1995, but kind of the French enthusiast never been able to let it go. And since 1995, there had been actually eight different attempts to get it off the ground. Um, this was the ninth and final one. And uh, same deal, I basically badgered my bosses, all the big bosses, anyone who might influence the decision to try and get on the Alpine project. Um, didn't succeed at first. Uh, I didn't manage to get their first shot, but I'm pretty persistent and I managed to get in there at my second attempt. Nice. And okay, let's talk talk about this. The, the, the sort of plan from the outset, I, I'm sure you've, you've talked about this sort of project quite a lot, but this concept of, you know, let's make it light. Um, and I, I want to know some of the challenges because it sounds like to make it remotely affordable and light, we've seen Gordon Murray Automotive go the sort of other way, really, mm. really light, but really, really expensive. Light and affordable, a headache sounds like. <laughs> oh, yes, oh, yes. See these gray hairs here, Sam? Um, so <laughs> you know, it's been described as the, the car that should never have existed. Um, and that's kind of true. It, it, it almost, this project almost died so many times, you know, it, it was kind of on life support all the way through. Um, and right from the start, it got off to a rocky start. So I won't bore you with the whole detail, but um, some, some folks may know the project started as a joint venture between Renault and Caterham. So this was still when Carlos Ghosn was the big boss of Renault. And his number two was Carlos Tavares. So the guy who is now CEO of Stellantis Group. And Carlos Tavares was and is a genuine, you know, you know, died in the world car enthusiast, gearhead, petrol head, call him what you want. He really wanted to make it happen. And he persuaded Carlos Gorn to have a go at, okay, let's do it. Let's resurrect this Alpine thing that we've talked about so many times. But to hedge the risk, the idea was to do it with a partner. So hedge the financial risk, hence the deal with Caterham. 
But within six or eight months, it, it, it all went wrong. So the, the marriage between the two companies basically didn't even last a year. Um, there were difficulties on both sides, financial difficulties on the Caterham side. And, at, you know, almost a few months in, it was already almost a wreck. Um, and that's the point at which I stepped mm. in uh, to rebuild the team, get it back on the rail. And exactly like you said, try and make a project that would make money. And the challenge, exactly as you say, for cars like this is um, there are two ways to do them. Either a car company decides, okay, look, we're going to just, this is just going to be a cost center. We're going to lose money on each of these cars. We don't care because the halo effect will allow us to sell our other cars. But that's not what Renault wanted to do. Renault wanted to do a car that would make money, that would stand on its own two feet. And that's really, really difficult to do. So, yeah, um, I guess my, my experience is on let's say normal kind of bread and butter cars like the Kashka and the Zoe had taught me a lot about, you know, how to count the pound shillings and pence or uh, euros and euros on teams. Yeah. And that helped keep the Alpine project super, super frugal. Um, so I won't give you too many numbers because they're still confidential for the Renault group, but I can tell you that this was uh, not a shoestring project. It was developed on half a shoestring and um, you know, even, even that we were very careful in how we used the half shoestring. Mm. yeah it, it, it how what was the final weight of a car so the premier edition right which is the launch edition the vehicle that sort of got all the press kudos and lots of journalists wrote very very nice things about it it was one zero eight zero kilograms so 80 kilograms over the top um and by the way that was a that was a specific decision as well so the the obvious thing would have been to say okay we're going to go for the ton and we, we talked about it long and hard. We said, oh, it'd be cool to have it at 99.99, you know. But uh, yeah. we decided not to because the 80 kilos allows you to have a little bit of creature comfort. Going back to what you said about just enjoying okay. driving the car. So it allows you to have a fairly decent set of carpets. It allows you to have air calm. It allows you to have a reasonably good sound system. It allows you to do a little bit of lining in the boot so that when you put your bag in there, the bag doesn't get scratched to hell. And we thought that 80 kilos was, was a good investment. But one of the things we decided from day one, and this was, this was one of the cool things about the project, we decided we were not going to ever lie about anything about the car. So, you know, car makers can play games with masses, right? Car maker can tell you, oh, Sam, this weighs one, three, seven, four. And you can play games. <laughs> Ferrari. Okay, is that a, is that a, yeah, is that a, I didn't, I didn't name anyone. <laughs> You know, the old wet mass <laughs> versus did. dry mass stuff, right? The so-called negative options, you know, where you option to remove the radio. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of tricks you can yeah. play. And we decided we're not going to play any of those tricks. If we say it's 1080 kilograms and a journalist takes it on a weigh scales, we're going to see 1080. And um, that actually, you know, that, that stood to us because when we announced anything to do with the car, the press realized that, okay, these guys are actually not playing games when they give us data it's bang on the nose or yeah. it's even a little bit pessimistic. That is, I mean, that's, that's a great way to approach it. And lots of manufacturers, like you say, maybe it's changed that a little. It, it actually, there's been a regulation change recently, I think in, in Europe, um, where you're no longer allowed to come up with like all these kind of rubbish options that basically no one's ever going to spec. And your weight has to more fit with like a, kind of like a base spec or an average spec car. Are you aware of this? 
Yeah, that, that's actually baked into in, into the, the the so-called WLTP regulation, a worldwide light vehicle mm. test protocol. Bit of a mouthful, but that does effectively, like you say, cut down on some of the games that that manufacturers used to play with the the so-called negative option. Um, a classic one to put on a negative mm. option, by the way, was you put the entire NVH pack on a negative option. So all of the sound deadening, you could just specify it as a negative option and you could just nice. untick that box and suddenly you've just saved 80 kilograms. Um, but you never build a car like that. You just have it there kind of hanging on the options. No. So yeah, those old games are, are over, uh, thankfully. Nice. I, I, I rate that. It's funny how people, you know, do all these things. So throughout the project, it, it must have been one extremely difficult to get down to that weight, and then you've got to make sort of choices and compromises along the way to get the weight, and then also the price and the, all of those sorts of things. What were some sort of big decision processes that could have gone one way or the other throughout the throughout the yeah the process? Oh, a bunch of them. I'm trying to think of a few examples. So, you know, uh, simple one, you know, seats. You know, we had a long debate about um, seat adjustment. Should we have seat back adjustment on the vehicle? You know, are, are we going to go for a fixed mm. bucket? And we, we, we threw that between us quite a lot. You know, a lot of people thought, no, no, you at least need a seat back rate. Come on, people are different shapes, different sizes, different ages. Um, but we bit the bullet on that one and said, no, we're going we're gonna to go for it. We're going to try and design one bucket that's comfortable for everybody as much as possible. And that saved a bunch. That saved, you know, by, from memory, 1.4 kilos. Um, a similar one, you know, do you put a seat slide on the passenger seat? And do you allow it to have longitudinal adjustment? Because you could, in theory, just fix it as far back as possible. And that would save you 600 grams. You take out the two seat rails. But that one we decided not to do because we thought, well... That's a bit of a compromise because if we do that, you can't slide the seat forward and put a briefcase or a carry case behind it. Um, so there are a couple of trivial examples. Of course, the big one, the big one, Sam, the big one that you're going to want to like pick my, you know, have a bone to pick with me on is um, we decided not to put a manual box in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that decision, uh, I... Yeah. I have feelings on this one. I think a lot of people do. <laughs> no, you do. Um, do. Do you think, would you, do you stand by the decision to not offer it as an option or a, an extra or to stick with the, the, the gearbox there was? And what were the, I, I feel like there was some hurdles in doing that as well. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, uh, honestly, the answer to your question, do I stand by it, is, is, is yes. But I'm immediately going to caveat that with yes, given the economic constraints, right? And so, in yeah. other words, if we had had, if we thought we could sell more cars, therefore have a larger volume, if we were absolutely sure that, no, this car is going to be a, a huge economic success, of course, we would have done two versions of the car. I would have been absolutely delighted to be able yeah. to offer a manual box option to the, you know, the, 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 the real, let's say, the hardcore enthusiasts. But given exactly what you said in the introduction, the fact that you know, it's going to be low volume, that means you've got to be very, very careful with the money you're spending. And by the way, the money you're spending is the customer's money. It's not Renault's money. I'm spending yeah. the money of the folks who buy the car. 
You have to be really careful and where you invest their money. And given that economical constraint, I'm going to say, yeah, I stick by the decision. I think for most customers, most of the time, it's the right decision. So yeah, I stick by it, even though uh, the hate, you yep. can send the hate mail to my uh, <laughs> DMs. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's all right. Um, and then I was actually going to follow that up with, if you were given, let's say, and uh, I can't remember what the what the retail price of the car was, but let's just say uh, another five grand per car in price, and you sold the same number, etc. Or you know you were going to sell the same number, or another ten. What what would be the things? What would change? What would you? Where where would that money sort of go? Or in that, if you were allowed that. Yeah, um, I've got the retail price. I'm, I'm sorry, I've got it sort of memorized in euros rather than uh, pound sterling. But the, the retail okay. price at launch was fifty nine thousand euros around there. Um, mm. So what? That's sixty three something like that in in, in pounds. Um, I, I won't go too much into the maths of it because again, we'd reveal com- confidential details of you could you could you could work backwards to find out how much we had, but. It would have to be significantly okay, yeah, more but, than five grand extra, Sam. It would have to be like okay, you'd be let's over just say, ten grand more. You know. Okay, let's go over ten. What would change, or what would you put in, or take out, or whatever? Oh, okay. So if we had had um, um, a, a completely unlimited, well, not completely, but a, a more, yeah, probably. Honestly speaking, we probably would have done a manual option because we knew at the time you know we knew at the time we would be disappointing certain you know a certain proportion of yeah. the of the market we knew particularly in the uk you know the uk customers are the hardcore um stick shift diehards um yeah so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tick the manual box um yeah, I'm gonna say this as well, Sam. But this is this we need a we had to we needed much more than ten grand for this one. But it would have been lovely to dream of bringing it to the United States. To be honest, that is another one where okay, you know, yeah, we we would have loved to. I mean, to the present day, I get so many people contacting me saying, Dave, you know, well, yeah. you know, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? I'm talking about uh, your, your fans in the states. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would have been. Uh, it would have been fantastic to be able to do a so-called federalized version, uh, which could pass the different yeah. crash and emissions tech over there. That would have been cool because you know the U.S. is a big sports car market. And when subsequently I moved to California, every time I'd see a Cayman out there uh, cruising down the Pacific Coast Highway or you know cruising down San Francisco, yeah. I used to think, "Damn it, an Alpine would look good here." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's cool. And then, because there's a, a question of um, sort of companies, you know, aftermarket companies that exist, and, and a lot of people go, mm. right, well, you know, you think you're better than the manufacturer. Um, and I, I'm. let's assume that we're not spending the same money on the parts that we're adding. So you've, you've got a significant budget to add aftermarket stuff. Um, what sort of difference do you think you can get with, let's just say you bought some really expensive suspension components. Now, does that make a difference or actually it's more about getting the right rates and bits and pieces and stuff like that? 
Um, I'm going to say more the latter, but particularly in the case of Alpine, because, because the car is so light and because it's got relatively long suspension travel, they're, they're the key two you know, successes to, I don't want to, I don't want to sound arrogant here, but you know the folks that really like the car, the journalists that wrote about it and all of that, that that's what they're expressing yeah. basically, is the lightness and the suspension travel. Um, so it's probably not worth throwing a bunch of money at very, very sophisticated suspension. I don't want to mention any particular, particular brands, in, uh, you know, recommend or not recommend them, but probably not worth it. What yeah. definitely is worth it is getting the car really well set up. You know, there's a couple of specialists in the UK as well who are doing fantastic jobs, you know, taking off the line, normal customer cars and just getting them set up really, really precisely. You know, folks like Litchfield, folks like yeah. Life 110, you know, David Pook, who you've had on the, the podcast, yeah. they'll take the car and rather than just throwing, you know, 20 grand's worth of shiny uh, struts at it, they're just going to set it up really accurately for that customer's usage. So, for example, if you're doing a lot yeah. of track days, you know, they're going to set it up with the spring rates, the ride height, the geometry that suits you. Um, if I'm not using it on track, but I want just a really, really good back road cruiser that's going to work in all weathers on bumpy roads in mid Wales, they'll set it up like that. So, um, yeah, and the car does benefit from that. Um, but yeah, it's not a car where you need to chuck a bunch of money at expensive components to get it working really well. Yeah. And then presumably like one of the situations, so I'm currently in the process of buying an E63 and then the main problem with those cars, and I would say most Mercedes at the moment in the UK is they're just not set up for our roads. Like they're, they're all too stiff. Um, and which in Europe works perfectly. Do when, let's say with Alpine or even Renault or all the cars you worked on, do they sort of the specs shift a little bit depending on the market? Like just set tiny things like, you know, spring rates or whatever. Or do you have to, how do you, how do you pick that middle point if not? Um, generally speaking, the answer is no. So to, to be able to do country specific setups, you need to be doing really huge volumes. So the Alpine, for example, let's start with Alpine, really, really small production volumes, right? And building tens of cars per day. You simply, you can't have a country specific setup. So we tried to do a a setup that would work everywhere. But specifically, thinking about not beautiful, you know, auto auto routes or auto bands with fantastic, we set it up in the back roads around Lyon, in you know little little French back roads with you know frost yeah. damaged tarmac, and we were specifically thinking of British B roads. Uh, we did some late testing in the UK to set it up, but you know we were we were setting it up as a back road car. Um, mm-hmm. But going back to your general question, you know some some car makers do have big enough volumes to be able to do country specific setups. I mean, I'll mention one uh, Toyota. So Toyota are known to do a specific suspension tune for the land of my birth, for Ireland. You know, very small market, oh, really? but they actually do a specific suspension tune uh, for the Irish market. But Toyota have enough volumes to be able to, to manage to do that. But So long answer yeah. to your question, Sam, but generally car makers are trying to hit a, a compliment. Mm. Interesting. Because that's something I've thought about recently. It's like you've got, you've got all these cars and you just sort of accept the general suspension setup that comes from factory and actually it's not optimized for you 
Like it could be very good and often they, they are very good, but they're not what you want, which could be totally different. Yeah. Um, um, one modern exception, though, very unusually, you know, the, and they got a little bit of stick for doing it, but it was interesting that the Polestar, um, which came out with mm. multi-adjustable, you know, tunable suspension yeah. um, on a road car, and everyone, what the hell? Um, but that's maybe that's getting something towards yeah. what you're you're talking about. But just to get back to your E63 for a moment, I don't want to bash any vehicle, right? And I don't want to get back on a hobby horse when we were already doing our, our you know, crying about cars being too wide, but let me just cry for a moment about, about vehicle, generally vehicle ride quality. Um, so vehicles have Mm. progressed enormously, right? In performance, in reliability, in safety, in braking, modern vehicles, brakes are just awesome. Um, in handling, but my God, we've regressed in ride quality and we've regressed so badly now that a lot of people actually have never driven a car with good ride quality. So they literally don't know what they're missing. Yes. We, we've, we've got so used to cars with super short suspension travel and super low profile tires that people think the ride is okay because they've never driven something with more travel and with a high side profile tire it rides really, really well. And again, if, if I could have two, you know, if I could have my fairy godmother grant me two wishes, one would be, please let's make narrower cars and two would be please let's go back to uh, you know reasonable suspension travel and smaller wheels please 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 <laughs> yes yes that would be that was something when i was doing the sort of rounds of various manufacturers and whatever looking for this sort of bigger car talking to salespeople, and it's not their fault but i realized that i was talking to people that often hadn't driven the competitors' cars or other representative vehicles in the space, for example. Like, you get in a... What did I do back-to-back at the sort of test thing recently? I did um, Mercedes GLE and then Mm. E and S class. And everyone, I think, has this image in their head that SUVs are really comfy. And they might the seat might be comfy, but this in terms of the suspension ride and everything, and doing S class versus GLE, and even I did um, Flying Spur versus Ben Tiger, um, I did a couple, a couple, and the SUVs in a in a the slow in a straight line, fine, like they're okay, but they weren't like great. Go around a corner, ride quality really bad. The company. We get some British cars like Range Rover. They just go, we just want it to be comfy. And they do the whole waft thing. And it is comfy. But so many manufacturers, like I went to this driver previous pre-facelift E63 or E53, I think it was, because that shape in the premium whatever category that it's in has the most boot space. So I was like, I want the most boot space got to be an e-class i went and drove the e53 came back and said okay what's wrong with this car like why is it so bad and they all looked at me like i was a complete idiot like what are you talking about it rides great like it doesn't it rides like shit seriously it's awful and they're like no it's great like no it's not and you're just like "Uh, uh, why am i banging my head on this thing you go and drive the audi versions 
Uh, like my S4 was like pretty good. An RS6 on air suspension is really good. Even with the stupid big wheels, it's, it's surprisingly good. But everyone has this image that, that say Mercedes are luxurious, great riding cars. And actually the reality now is most of them aren't. But yeah. it's all the things we've discussed. And it's just like... <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And again, I, we can't blame the, the guys and girls working in the dealers either because they don't have either the no. time or they, they'll have been trained by their OEM. So let's say it's a Mercedes dealer. They'll have gone mm. to a training course. Of course, they'll have had a few days of training in the customers, in the vehicle's features, etc., And they'll have had a chance to drive the whole range, but they won't have had the competitors there probably. So they'll, no. if they're good and if they're interested, they'll know about their own car. But exactly as you said, they don't have the time or they haven't had the opportunity to benchmark the competition. So um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one, but um yeah, I'm an advocate of, you know, bring back good ride quality. Come on, let's have some cars that ride. And, and by the way, ride and handle. Yeah. It's not one or the other. There are cars out there that, that yes. can both. Yes. And we, we seem to slightly get a choice at the moment of you can have good ride quality. I would say of those sorts of cars, lean cars, I think that Audi's at the moment ride the best BMWs in the middle and Mercedes. It's just saying there's three brands. Obviously, there's many other brands. Um but I chose the three series because it was kind of in the middle, but it handled much better than the Audis, et cetera, et cetera. So you, why can you not have both? Because you can absolutely have good driving dynamics and good ride. Like a rally car rides yep. really well. Yep. Handles amazingly. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's possible. And I'm, I'm hoping it will come back, but for it to come back and um, you know, it, it OEMs will basically do what they can sell, right? The OEMs will literally respond to what the customer wants yeah. or what they think the customer will buy. So, you know, it does need a little bit of sort of bottom-up push from us, the consumers, the car buyers, to say, hey, I don't want my back to be, you know, jarred to death every time I go over a little little joint in the in the road surface. We want better riding cars, please, guys. And um, that will hopefully get the OEMs to I think, wind the clock back a little bit. And I think it's happening. Yeah, it's happening. Like the reason I'm looking at this one is the facelifted version is slightly better. It's like slightly better. Um, Audi with their RS models. Uh, if you looked at an RS3 from ten years ago, it had horrific ride quality. Same with the A45. Now the new RS3 and each generation has changed and they've got better. The damping's got better. It's just got better. And I think we used to have this perception, and general public used to have this perception that a stiff ride was a performance ride. And I think people are starting to realise that that just doesn't have to be the case and also it's not very comfy. Um, an, an avenue I would like to explore, mm. and I, I know we're, <laughs> we've, been going, we've been going for a long time, but after the Alpine phase, you um, you did a, a stint with, was it, is it Biting Cars? But Biting. Yeah. I want to sort of move slightly past that. Um Waymo and mm. autonomous driving. Mm. What were you doing there? So Sam, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to duck that question a little bit because it is really top secret. <laughs> I know that sounds bad, but if I answered your question, okay. you'd see in the back of the screen, you'd see a bunch of black clad lawyers from Google would wrestle me to the floor <laughs> and, uh, and put, put silver tape on my okay. mouth. No j- jokes apart. Um, I can't say exactly what I was doing there, but what I can say is it was part of Waymo's kind of overall partnerships team where they work with 
exterior companies. And obviously, this is not a giveaway. Okay. Uh, we work with many OEMs, so the ones in the public domain, you know, folks like Stellantis, yeah. Fiat Chrysler, Jaguar Land Rover, uh, the Renault-Nissan uh, Alliance, etc. So I was part of the team that was um, dealing with those companies and basically doing the engineering translation between the vehicle technology and Waymo's autonomous okay. driving stack. Um, and I can mention one other car maker because okay. it's now in the public domain because Waymo have since showed the car actually. Um, so it was a collaboration with the Chinese uh, car maker Geely to launch a new brand called Zika with a Z. And Waymo showed off their first custom-built, you know, driverless robo-taxi that will be built in conjunction with Geely, and that was showed off a couple of months ago. And I may have been working on that, possibly. Who knows? <laughs> ah, okay. Right. So I have a few. I'm, I'm, in, I'm really interested in this space and how it's going to go. Um, and I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, and we were, we were sort of talking about autonomous cars, and. I don't want to get too into the sort of what necessarily what Tesla's doing at the moment, but because that, that seems to provide a lot of interest from the general internet and some hate and some not, and <laughs> whether beta testing is, is an acceptable thing, etc. Mm. But um, in terms of the tech used by various companies, um, whether it, you know, whether, whether it's camera based or a mix of sensors and, and stuff like that, um, we we do have some sort of fundamental questions that are going to come up at some point about autonomous cars driving on roads with other cars. Mm. And one of the big ones is the sort of, um, you know, someone's pushing a pram out and the car has to make a decision about whether it crashes into a baby or a street sign or protects its owner and all of these sort of like philosophical questions about autonomous cars how have you done anything in in that realm and like what are your thoughts on how we're going to go with that sort of stuff yeah so um well that's a big question sam so i think the the first thing we've got is, to, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the first thing we've got to talk about is you know we do have to separate and this gets really dry and boring really quickly, so I'll try and keep it short. We've got to separate the realm of ADAS, okay, driver assistance systems, with true autonomous yep. driving. That's the first thing, because they're confused in people's minds at the moment, through the fault, by the way, of engineers like me using impenetrable jargon and maybe uh, the, the press not, not, not being able to explain it clearly enough. But very easy question is the following. You've got to ask yourself, if, if the car is so-called autonomous, you've got to ask yourself, can I sit in the back seat? If the answer is yes, you can sit in the back seat. It's autonomous driving, so-called AD level four or level yeah. five defined by the SE. If you have to sit in the front seat, or if you have to have a driving license, you have to be awake, you have to be sober, it ain't an autonomous vehicle. It is a vehicle equipped yeah. with an ADAS system. Um, so that's the first thing we've got to get clear. And Tesla, for example, let's go there. Let's risk the hate mail. Tesla system, be that uh, autopilot or full self-driving, it is an excellent, I'm going to underline three times, right? An excellent ADAS system. It is an L2 ADAS yes. system, and it's one of the best out there. It's comparable to, you know, 
Supercruise from GM or the systems on uh, Mercedes-Benz S-Class. Excellent system. It's simply not autonomous driving. So that's the first thing we've got to get clear. Mm-hmm. And everyone who's working on true autonomous driving, that means you can sit in the back, go to sleep, you can be someone who's visually impaired, or in fact, you could be just a pizza. You don't have to be a human being at all. Yeah. Every company, with no exception, Sam, there are no exceptions, are working on the, the holy trinity of sensing technology. That means camera, radar, plus LIDAR. There, are, there is no disagreement among the, uh, ex- the experts in the field. There is full consensus you need all mm. three. So that's, that's the first thing. And, um, you know, again, that's not bashing Tesla. That's not, you know, I'm, 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 I underlined it again. Their system is great. You just got to take it for what it is, which is a driver assistance system. Now, coming to your, your question about, you know, what happens if, you know, a mom pushes out a push car and you, you, you have to kill the kid or there's 10 people on the other side or do, do we kill those? This is known in, yeah. the, in the business as the so-called trolley car problem, right? Um, uh, the, the, it's known as that in the U.S. And frankly speaking, it is a philosophical mind experiment, and it's very interesting to philosophers. Um, it is of zero interest to the engineers working on the autonomous driving system. No okay. one spends more. Maybe they chat about it at the coffee break, right? But the engineers are yeah, trying yeah. to get the systems significantly safer than human behavior statistically okay so let, let, let's take that in the u.s last yes. year forty thousand people died on the roads in the u.s okay the engineers are trying to get that to a point where and please don't quote me on this right where maybe it will be divided by 10 you know maybe instead of forty thousand yeah. people four thousand people are going to die um so significant improvements not just 10 or 20 percent improvement but like significant order of magnitude improvement and all of the work being done on the sensors, on the tech stack, on the testing, on the simulation is aimed at that. It's aimed at getting the general safety level improved. It's not aimed at very specific, well, what if a dog runs out and then there's a lady with a push car and this, uh, that, that's not how it works. It's a general statistic and uh, statistical approach. Um, but aimed genuinely at, you know, not trying to just make a couple, just, it's not a slightly better approach. It's genuinely trying to move the bar, you know, a, a long way ahead. Significant. Um, and that's why it's taking so long. That's why it's taken decades of research. It's a, and I, I think, I don't know how you feel about it, but if I'm getting in a car and I'm driving, I accept that, ultimately if i make a mistake and i crash and i kill someone or whatever or i die it's it, you know it's on me if i'm in the back of a car and it's driving itself then it's on the person that made the car or whoever's in whatever you know it's on it's not on me it's on someone else now i'm at the moment happy with the risk level of me getting in a car and me driving it i've made that decision um if I get in a car that's autonomous, I don't know what level of risk. At the moment, I'm kind of not really comfortable with any risk. Okay, that, you know, academically, there has to be a, a small bit, but the chance that that car could make a, an error and kill me or kill a bunch of other people, well, let's just say, more importantly, me, um, <laughs> are... When you take 40,000 deaths a year and you turn it into 4,000 deaths a year, but if that's 4,000 people that were sitting in the back and end up dead um, and 
have kind of been killed by the manufacturer. Maybe not, but you, ultimately it's under their control. That's quite a different situation. And how how is that being approached? And what's the sort of strategy moving forward on that? Yeah, so big, big questions here, Sam. But first of all, you're absolutely right. So when we talk about ADL4L5, absolutely right. You're not driving. You are not the driver. The driver of the car is the machine from a technical point of view and more important, from a legal mm. point of view. Um, so that's one of the huge challenges for the leaders, you know, companies like Waymo, Cruise, Argo, Aurora, etc. They know that, obviously, and that is one of the massive challenges they have. By the way, it's also one of the key barriers to adoption because people say, well, why are they not here already? Why, why don't we have, you know, I've, I've heard that Waymo operate in Phoenix, Arizona. Why is it not in London? Yeah. Why not? Let's go. One of the reasons is exactly what you just said, reassuring the general public. So it's not enough to convince the governments of each country that, look, we've done this testing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's the statistics. Here's the simulation. Here's the results of our, of our um, real road and simulation testing and therefore get the laws modified. It's not that. We have to convince you. We have to convince uh, the general public that not only is it safe enough for you to get in the car, but it's safe enough to put your loved ones in the car your kids or your mom or your dad or your husband, boyfriend, wife, whatever. Mm. And that also is, that's a massive work that that's undertaken at the moment. So again, I don't want to, you know, push way more too much, even though I'm an ex employee and I think it's a great company, but you know, we're starting to see those companies do that work. So way more last year, for example, published a really detailed safety report uh, analyzing every incident that it has ever had in the last seven years of operations and they actually released the sensor data as well. So they released what all the what all the sensors saw at the time of the accident, so that independent researchers could rerun the accident and see if it could have been avoided. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that kind of open data is what's going to eventually convince first experts, then journalists, then the general public that okay, this this technology is safe enough for me to put my loved ones in. Um, but yeah, the, the companies I mentioned, the leading companies, are absolutely. You know, it's not just a technical challenge. It's not just a bunch of engineers typing code. It's a it's a bunch of lawyers. It's a bunch of um, public affairs specialists, city affairs, city planners tackling those problems mm. that you mentioned. And again, I'm going to go back to ADAS for a moment. So, what's the fundamental difference with ADAS, driver assistance system? The driver, the the clue is in the is in the name, right? The driver, legally speaking, is still the driver. It's the human being. If if your system yeah. beeps at you and says, Sam, please take control in the next 10 seconds, and you blow it, and you you don't take control in the next 10 seconds, and there's an accident, that's on you, my friend. So it's a much easier legal situation also. Um, so, yeah, we, mm. Sam, we need a whole other podcast to go into this in detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And it is a... It's an interesting one. And I think at, at the moment, I think the public general knowledge of the difference is so low. And the I think a lot of people want to, and not picking a brand, just any ADAS system, you, you get in the car and if it will stick in its lane and brake when the car in front slows down or whatever, generally I think a lot of pe- people go, oh, great, it's, it's driving off. itself. Mm. I'm going to start doing some other stuff. And you're not paying attention. And then we, we've we got loads of problems associated with that. 
Um, something that, yeah, that's a, another sort of sort of not like thought experiment, but when you've got a car that's fully self drive, it's ignore the term, it's it's driving itself, and you're sitting in the back. When something goes wrong, hmm. let's say you're in the motorway, and uh, I don't know, so one of your systems fails, or you get hit by a rock, and it just so happens to hit the camera or a certain thing and or or the motor's not working and it's starting to slow down how does the car put itself in the safest place possible rather than just park itself in the middle of the motorway puts the hazard because a lot of cars now will just slow down to a stop and put the hazards on Uh, of which you're then stuck in the middle of a motorway Ah, uh, Sam, such a good question. Can, can you please can, can you just invite me back and we'll do an autonomous car session? Because um, this, 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 this stuff is so fascinating, but it takes some time. Let, let me have a quick run at the second part of your question. And I yeah, yeah, and then first. we'll move on. So the short answer to the second part is high levels of redundancy. So true again, true self-driving right. cars. Not talking about cars with the uh, you know highway assist driver assistance, but yeah. true L four L five. The systems, by definition, have to be highly redundant for what you said. So first of all, the sensors, you can't just run it on two cameras for the reason you just said. What if one camera gets a rock through it? Here, you're snookered. So you have to have multiplicity of many, many cameras, several radars, and several LIDARs so that, you know, statistically, there's always going to be at least one eye you're still going to be working. But also, that redundancy applies also to what are known as the motion control systems, steering and braking. So exactly like you said, it's not sufficient to simply stop in the slow lane of the motorway and put the hazards on. That's not going to be a good idea. So even yeah. if the vehicle has a full power steering failure, it needs to be able to steer itself into what's technically known as the MRP, minimum risk position, which probably means taking the off-ramp from the motorway or the freeway and parking mm. in the first safe parking space. Guess what that means? That means it has to have two power steering pumps. Not just one, it has to have two. It has to have two power supplies. It has to have double everything, full redundancy, avionic style. And that runs through all the systems in the car. So again, it's undermining. There's a world of difference between, you know, something that can temporarily take over control on the motorway and use you as a backup. You are the backup system. Yeah. And a truly autonomous vehicle. They are, you know, day and night in terms of technical complexity. They're fascinating things on, under the skin. Um, and just to go back to your, your, your first point, I, I fully agree. I think the general public's understanding of this stuff is, is, is sadly lacking. And I'm going to put, I'm going to point the finger at three parties for that. Um, first of all, us, the engineers, I think we've done a bad job in kind of making the jargon simple enough for everybody to understand. We, we, we love our terms and we love our acronyms and we, it's boring to most people. Um, secondly, yeah. I think the car makers have been very loose in their use of terms. So, for example, Mercedes yeah. uses drive pilot. Um, GM uses super cruise. Tesla uses autopilot. But the actual functions in there... Uh, that doesn't tell me what the thing actually does. It's just a marketing name. So the, the OEMs have yeah. been too fast to cook up cool-sounding marketing names that actually don't help you understand. And the third uh, finger, I think, has to point a little bit, and I'm going to point this very gently, right, at our friends from the automotive press, 
who, who maybe haven't been disciplined enough in, in, in use, use of terms, use of technical terms, and kind of translating the engineer's jargon for the general public. So I'm hoping as well in the next few years, you know, the three parties I mentioned, but I'm starting with us, the engineers. We need to start speaking bloody plain English to people and start yeah. helping people understand what this technology is and what it is not. And um, yeah, if I can help a little bit with doing that, I'd, I'll, I'll do it gladly. <laughs> if we had more I think time. It would, be, it would be very good. Yeah, yeah. It would be really good if all manufacturers and journalists and everyone, whatever, referring to certain types of systems same have words. to use the same v- words that were yeah. easy. When you, re- when you heard them, they made sense. And you go, yeah. yes. Like, yeah. it's a drive-it-yourself assistant system or whatever. Like, yeah. y- there's no way you're thinking that car's driving itself. Like, that sort of stuff would be super helpful. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting – it's a problem. Um, Right, I'm I'm conscious that we've uh, <laughs> we're ticking on. So we normally I normally wrap these up with five questions. <laughs> do you have the stuff that I'm just going to fire into it because I think you know what these Go are? On. Um, on. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? You, you know I do, and it's not. Uh, I was talking to my wife about this, and she said you can't tell them that because it's like it's not a road trip. You should be doing something like across America or something. And, <laughs> It's it's not that, but it was basically um, to 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 make the story fairly short. It was just before the launch of the Alpine. Um, we launched it at the Geneva Show in 2017, and the winter before, it was mm-hmm. December. The marketing guys decided, wouldn't it be cool if we had a couple of prototypes like running around Paris, and we can take photographs of the cars with like the Eiffel Tower in the background, and you know. This is totally, by the way, car companies don't do this. You don't take pure prototypes and run them around Paris three months before you reveal the car in Geneva. You just don't do it. But because we were helping, we were kind of crazy and we could break the rules and we did it. So we basically transported two cars, you know, real hand-built protos into the center of Paris at night, 1 a.m., unloaded them from the transporter and we drove them around in the rain, all of the Paris landmarks. And I remember just driving the car around the... Nice. You know, the, the Place de l'Etoile, where the Arc de Triomphe is. I remember driving it around, thinking, yeah. I can't believe I'm doing this. It's just like, this is the, you know, <laughs> the first Alpine that's been built for the last 30 years. And I'm driving around the Place de l'Etoile, uh, you know, yeah. date of night. This is just, this is just surreal. And that was, yeah, that's, that's probably the most memorable drive. It was like a, I don't think we went over 20 kph all night because we were in town and we didn't want to get yeah. uh, in trouble with the, uh, with the folks in blue, but it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is that sounds pretty cool. I like that. And uh, and, and and dodging any random people that are like, hang on a minute, what is that? Oh, <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you one quick anecdote about it. So you know, we were we were trying to farm the cars up, and obviously we had an opening car, you know, just to drive ahead of us, and we also had a recovery vehicle, right? In case one of them threw a problem and we had to put it on a load, yeah. we also had that vehicle and we had a van with a couple of photographers. In it. So we had a little convoy. We all had little walkie talkies to keep it together. So I was the lead car and I was outside, parked on the curb, right? Middle of Paris, but it's taking a little bit of time to farm up. The guys are not there. And I'm on the walkie talkie getting a little bit annoyed with everybody saying, come on guys, we gotta go, we gotta go. Cause people were walking by and starting to get out their smartphones. So I'm sitting there in the car, just idling, getting increasingly frustrated. The next thing, a police car pulls up next to me, like Paris police, you know, the full lot, you know, a uh, black and white. And the guy like just said, you know, window down. 
So I dropped the window and the guy goes, uh, bonsoir. And I went, uh, oui, bonsoir, monsieur. And he just went, um, nice car. And I, I, I looked at it. It was a Renault Kangoo. And I just went, <laughs> yeah, I like yours too. And, it, <laughs> and he just said, um, that the new Alpine? And I'm like, yeah. And he said, uh, you just going for a drive? And I went, yeah. And uh, he just went, um, have a great evening. Enjoy it. And just drove off. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, nice. <laughs> right, if you can only drive one car for the rest of your life, and you're allowed a 500-pound euro banger on the side. Yeah, I'm just going to – I can speed this one up, Sam, because I think it's almost a it's almost a car chat standard response here. I'm afraid it's going to be um, – it's <laughs> yeah. going to be a 911. Um, I think probably 991. Um but pretty bog mm-hmm. spec, you know, I'm not going to go for any crazy, crazy B-winged thing because 911s, I think, um, you know, the basic vanilla one is often the one to have. So, yeah, that's that's my baby, yeah. 991. Um, nice. Yeah. It's, um, I think that's a good option. I, I'm, yeah. I think I'm slowly coming around to the, not, not base spec as in, like, you don't have a sound system and stuff like yeah, that, yeah. but the lower spec models because of, all the things we talked about ride quality comfort general usage etc i think there's a lot of lot of value in the less crazy crazy ones uh oh, what do you think is the most my, undervalued car i was going to say my 500 pound beater by Sorry. the way is a is, is a micro k10 it's a that's no other answer possible oh nice that's your... <laughs> <laughs> perfect uh, most undervalued car at the moment. What should we work uh, on? A little bit of a niche one here um, for the Alpine fans out there. So, you know, I love the A110, the modern one. love the older one, the famous Berlinette, right, that inspired the A110. But I think a genuinely undervalued car out there is the A3110. So the 3110 folks might not know. You might have to Google it. But it's the kind of swaggy car that replaced the Berlinette in the early 70s, ran through the 70s. It was actually really successful. They sold a bunch of them in Germany, and they're cheap as chips at the moment. Um, and mm. you know, I think they're a genuinely good investment. They're a bit of a cool '70s wedge design. There you go. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's a cool bit of a keeper. Hmm? Yeah, I think those um, that sort of boxy shape is really coming to into its own now. I think at the time, and I've said this on the podcast before, but if if all the cars on the road look the same and you're all boxy cars, then everything just blends in and it doesn't necessarily look like super cool. When you see these shapes in modern traffic or amongst modern shapes, they stand out and they look seriously cool. Yeah. Uh, and also, I love that car because it was designed straight after the original A110, which is all organic, smooth shapes, etc. Mm. And it was the same guys. It was the same design studio with Jean Redelet, the guy who founded Alpine, who oversaw the design of it. And such a radical departure, you know. They they went, you know, they went crazy yeah. with that car. And you can pick them up pretty cheaply. The mechanicals are all simple. It's all you know standard Renault stuff that you can replace pretty easily. Um, yeah, so I think they're a really cool car, undervalued, undernown. So, yeah, all the A3110 owners out there now are going to be going, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've just, before we get to um, the last two questions, I've realized uh, that I've, I've not brought up this, which I. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, for the, the people listening, um, Dave 
sent me a book. Um, I Unfortunately, I haven't really had much time to read it because it only arrived about a day ago. But you've got a book out at the moment. Um, just tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, well, we've we've covered quite a lot of it, actually, Sam, in between the different um, questions, not so much about autonomous driving. But listen, the, the, the idea for it was, you know, I thought of all the car enthusiasts I know and folks who are interested in cars, you know, everyone I know, basically, has some interest in cars. But people don't really know kind of where they come from, how they come into being. So, and if they do, they generally have some knowledge about the work of car designers, right? Or car stylists, as we used to call them in the old days. So, you know, the, the, the creative folks who come up with the, the, the shapes of the cars. But they don't really know about the work of engineering them and building them in the factory and the industrial side of things. So mm-hmm. I thought, hey, you know, I've, I've got, I know that world. I love that world. So I'll, I'll write about it. So it's really kind of an explanation of where cars come from. And, you know, they, they say you should only write about what you know. So I decided to base it on three projects I know very well. We've touched on them all, right? The Qashqai, yeah. the, the Zoe, and finishing up with the, the Alpine A110. So, um, yeah, check it out if, if, if folks uh, want to know a little bit about what goes on in the uh, kind of backstage of the industry. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm interested to have a little, have a, have a read. I will definitely get around to that uh, at some point in time. Um, right, most interesting car to you at the moment? Hey, you know, it, by coincidence, it came up several times in our conversation, uh, as it happens. Um, the Lucid Air. So we, we talked about it a couple of times, but okay, yeah, you brought it up, Sam. I, I didn't, but I am genuinely fascinated at the moment about this question of electric vehicle efficiency. And actually, quite a, a lot of the work mm. I do as a freelance engineer is on that topic. So I found myself Googling the air and getting into how they've worked on the powertrain, the packaging. So... It is an, an extremely efficient vehicle from two point uh, two uh, viewpoints. One is the electrical efficiency, but also the packing packaging efficiency. It's a big car, but it's got enormous size inside yeah. it. So that, that's a very interesting car for me. I've been sort of uh, skulking on all the various websites, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, um, I'm I'm quite um, quite interested in that car and quite impressed by it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing one. I don't know when I'm going to see one, but at, at some point. Um, and see how these these sort of companies evolve and you know what they're going to make and if if they start off with something like that like you know it bodes well for the future i think for sure for sure um yeah i mean they've a long path ahead of them they've only just gone into startup production they've got to deal with all the supply chain yeah. stuff and all the teething problems the production nightmare like elon musk once said and um, so they've got a long way ahead of them but um yeah, they're going to be an interesting company to, to watch. And the interior design as well, I would say, is extremely interesting. I've been, I've not driven one yet, but I've been lucky enough to sit mm. in one and have a good uh, poke around it. And it's, uh, when you sit into it, it's a very different experience to other sort of luxury cars. They genuinely try to do something a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit different. Yeah, that's that's what I'm looking forward to from all manufacturers, really, is is embracing the EV powertrain and going we don't have to do stuff the same because generally things are packaged around various stuff of which some are still going to be there steering wheel, whatever, but like we're not tied to all of the old ways of doing it. So let's do the stuff you can do um, and change what cars are like. Yeah. And I think the loose, I mean, I don't want to, it'll be interesting when you get a chance to, to sit in one and drive one. But again, I don't think they've done stuff differently just for the sake of being different. You know, going back to the conversation we had about, you know, mm. peak screen, they haven't done stuff weird just in, just, 
just to be different. You know, you will find some physical buttons in there yeah. for things that, you know, should be physical buttons, but, um, but it is, it is different and it feels different. It feels different to an S class. It feels different to a BMW. It feels different to a Tesla S. Um, so yeah, I like it a lot and, um, be interesting to see what it, when it comes to the UK and folks get to drive it in the UK, if it, if it feels very different here than it does in California, that, that, that might be tricky because it is a, it yeah. is big, it is wide. <laughs> yeah. And then as we said, those cars wide works in the States because they have tons more space. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Final question. You know what it is? Five car garage. All right. Here we go. I'm going to rattle through this. You know, this, this one always made me smile the first time I, I heard your podcast, Sam, because I've, I've played this game since I was a kid with my dad. This was what we did in a <laughs> while away, long time journey. But back then we used to have 10 car garage and that was already okay. bloody yeah. hard to choose 10. So choosing five is impossible. Yeah. You know. So I'm going to rattle through the real quick. So my 10 car garage to start up has five 911s in it of different flavors. <laughs> Um, (laughs) it's true Um, so my five car garage only has two 911 so let's let's get them out the way first so the first one is a car I actually have in my garage at the moment the same one so I have a 911 SC it's a little bit backdated a little bit lightweight I love it it's nice great great compromise of you you know all 911s you know it's it's light it dances it's got narrow tires but it's got enough power to get you into trouble so okay that that's that's in there yeah the second one, I really had trouble deciding between like a something really crazy, like a, a 911 GT2 RS. But in the end, I came down for it's got to be a 991.2 GT3. You know, it's Sorry? the or wait. It's, yeah, I'm afraid I'm a sucker for the wing. I'm a bit of a show off. I, I keep the wing. Yeah, yeah. I'm a- <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah, it's got to be pretty close to peak 911, and uh, I love them. But yeah, I'm enough of a I'm enough of a show off to keep the wing. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, I think I think two good good choices. So you got three more. All right. So I, I guess I'll have to put one in there that I've actually done myself. So I'm going to park a little Alpine A110 in there. Um, yeah. Base spec, you know, you, your A110 is a little bit like a 911. You want as, as few toys as possible. So the 17-inch wheels, you know, simple seats, simple color. Um, I tick the sports exhaust because it makes a nice noise, but, you know, simpler the better when it comes to A110s. So that would be that would be packed in there. Um, cool. Next up is, I, I actually, this comes from my dad as well. I've, I've got a soft spot for pre-war cars. I mean, pre-war, war two. Um Ooh. So, you know, I, I grew up with 70s, 80s, 90s stuff, but, you know, I, I like my proper old cars, so I'm going to go for, um, this is this is completely fantasy land, I'm going to go for a Bentley 4.5 litre. Um, so late 1920s, you know, uh, these are the cars that, you know, dominated Le Mans at the time. It's, you know, the fastest lorry yeah. in the world, as it was known as. Um, you know, great, <laughs> great hulking things, you know, the Bentley boys and all that good stuff. So I'd have one of those parked, um, in the very large garage because they're enormous things there. Right? <laughs> yes, that would be cool. Is that is that five? But we've got uh, one no, I've got one left. So my last one, I thought of all of that. Okay, oh that's good, but damn, I need a daily driver because they're all pretty. Yeah. you know, they're not very practical. Um, so I thought, okay, I need something four seaters. You know, something with a little bit of boot space that I could just run around in, and it's going to be a Nissan GTR. 
R34, not the R35. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a, I'm a rule, um, GTR guy, so it's got to be a straight six. Um, so yeah, Nissan GTR R34 nice. is the fifth one. Nice. I like them. I like all yeah. GTRs actually, and I think, I think they're all they're starting to go there. But everyone is starting this sort of generation of almost like playstation cars <laughs> kind of you know brought in by stuff like that is it's really starting to go up and up and up and up. Cool, the special yeah. ones are just going up and up and up in value um and matching the sort of italian exotica and whatever oh, I, had a, I had a quick google of uh r34 so yeah, what if I actually uh, yeah the, especially the you know the, the rare ones like the nismo variants or anything that's a, yeah. a v-spec they're 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 strong money now but they're they're fantastic things. Having spent the entire podcast, Sam, talking about the benefits of lightweight and small cars, nimble, etc., <laughs> going for like a big JDM bruiser. But uh, hey, I like them. Yeah, yeah, they're cool. I, yeah. I don't think anyone would disagree with that statement. But yeah, <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much for for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Sam. It's been a long time. Been, as I said, listening a long time. So it's been really nice to be <laughs> on the other side. And yeah, if you ever want to come back, we'll do an in-depth dive into um, autonomous and semi-autonomous driving. We can do an entire series on that if you want. <laughs> I I would like to do that at some point. I think there's so many things to sort of unpack in that space. Um, but yeah, another conversation for another time. For sure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.